Convoy on a strange voyage, carrying a rare cargo. The forests, the plants, the growing things doomed to extinction on Earth. Silent running. Cataclysm in outer space. Every moment bringing its own danger as man explores the mysteries of an unknown and limitless universe. Valley Forge, Valley Forge, what the hell's wrong? You're moving out, you're accelerating. I've got a premature detonation on dome number two, and I've got an explosion in the main cargo deck. Now, please advise me immediately. Give me Barker. I can't find Barker. I can't find Wolf or Keenan either. I'm afraid, Neil, that they might have been in dome number two. Meet the almost human drones, amazing companions on a journey beyond the stars. Joan Baez sing Rejoice in the Sun and Silent Running. Starting the show, or you're going to do? Uh, I'll start. Okay. I feel a burst of energy. Scooter has injected me. Uh, He's hey. injected you. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, seventy movies we saw in the seventies. Hello. I'm Mike, I'm Mike McPadden. I wrote uh, Teen Movie Hell. I wrote Heavy Metal Movies. I'm in Chicago, in Wisconsin. Who's my co-host? I'm Ben Riser, Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> I didn't write any books, good, bad, or indifferent. I've got a glass of um, uh, rye, of uh, bullet rye. <laughs> that's, bullet my rye. that's my claim to fame. Hopefully, bullet rye will come on as a sponsor. That's once right. We get, yeah. All we need is another 200,000 listeners, and I think we'll get some sponsorship <laughs> yeah. deal. I'm drinking signature brand seltzer water. Tell that to the Jewel Osco supermarket chain in the Chicago area. Hey, now, we have wait, a guest. Is this, is this our first... No, this is, well, this might be our, no, Chad was in New York, but this is, I feel like we should make a big deal out of the fact that we have somebody live from New York. Mike, you like that show still. Go ahead. Give it the old live from New York. <laughs> dude, dude. It was the absolute single worst episode in 45 years last week. And I love Bill Burr. But anyway, Do, hey, we have a guest here <laughs> yeah. in New York. Your name, please. Greetings. I am Scooter McRae. What? Can you believe it? Scooter McRae is here. Unfucking believable It's great. They said I'm a, it would I'm never a fan happen. Of, I'm it's... a fan of your movies, Mr. McRae. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, don't fool. Yeah, that was as big a surprise even. You've seen my shit, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, like, the kind of, like, background I have and the kind of maniac I am. Yes. God bless you, sir. You're yeah. a very patient man. Yeah. I wanted, can we jump right over to talking about Scooter's first movie, and then we'll back, well, then we'll backtrack. We'll right. backjack through our SUNY purchase years with Scooter, and then eventually, uh, yes, eventually we'll land back in 1972 yeah. with a little number called Silent <laughs> Silent Running. But Shatter Dead, I've been walking around for the last two days, and I've been singing Shatter Dead to the tune of. Now, is this? Does everyone do this? Does everyone do Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting? 
But with Shatter Dead, Shatter Dead, Shatter Dead. That makes total dead, sense. Shatter Dead, Shatter Dead. Oh my God. Shatter. I have never heard that. I love that. Wow. wow. I assume that that was why you named it. <laughs> no, I was I walking around going S H A T T E R. Dead. <laughs> dead. Oh, like, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, there's the Harlan Ellison story, Shatter Day, which is a single word, which I wasn't ripping off consciously but oh, it's definitely in the same I, ballpark I, I know that story it's the, the, you, the right it became a twilight zone episode guy, directed um, by wes craven with bruce willis back when they did the revival in the oh, 80s really? I never so saw it's that. known for that as well in addition wow. to happening to be a wonderful well it's a harlan ellison story of yeah. course it's good it's a guy who wakes up and language subtly changes around him right is that what it that's was? a different episode that's the one with alan king uh, Holy uh, shit! And, Listen to this guy. Wow. You know, uh, it's like a dinosaur. Dinosaur. He keeps saying and running around, and no one understands him. The Shatterday one is the one where Bruce Willis gets a phone call from himself, kind of saying, "Hey, fuck you! I'm your better self." And it, and and Bruce Willis is like, "No, you're not. Who the hell are you? You're an imposter." And as time goes on, uh, there's two of them that eventually becomes. Oh, spoiler alert! No, I won't go there. But um, oh, no, we yeah, spoil things. It's a on great this episode. Show. Great episode and worth seeing. But the one you mentioned, uh, and I I wish I'd remember the name of that episode. Like I think it's called Wordplay, which might have actually also been directed by Craven, but I'm not sure. Because wow. Craven did some of his best work on that series, because otherwise he was a shit director and made lousy movies. So I think that's <laughs> the highlight of his career is his Twilight Zone episodes. But I'll leave it at that for now. Mike is a big scream hater, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh no! This is so much more about creating yeah. the hate. That's no, the but I mean, the, but, but I, mean, I agree with you. At least that's like professionally made. I mean, I don't like the. In, yeah. in, I, I'll say this: when I first saw it in 1996, I enjoyed it. It was a fun night out at the movies. I mm-hmm. didn't know what it, it portended for the future. <laughs> um, but no, I agree yeah. with you. I think Last House on the Left is terribly made. I think. Uh, I think whoa, they're all whoa, really whoa, bad. Whoa. I, Except not, for well, Nightmare on Elm Street, I think is great. I love Nightmare on Elm Street is the bearable one for. Oh, really? Yeah, you like that one? I think the first forty-five minutes of Last House on the Left are some of the most harrowing sequences ever committed to celluloid. I would agree with you just because of the content. I don't think it's especially. Have you ever seen the the bizarre chaos? The remake, the uncredited remake of Last House on the Left. Scooter, you must have seen this. No, I know it's made by it's. I know it's a contentious remake because of right. the person who made it, uh, but I have not seen it. And uh, uh, oh, why can't but, I? to be to be clear? I yeah. hate the original so much. Right? Why would I see a remake of it? The but remake I is actually to, to, far to more. Ben's harrowing. point though. Yeah, Ben, really? ben does have a point. Yeah. There. I, I I hate the movie. I'm not even sure it's a bad movie. Uh, Last House on the Left. But okay. I just hate it, and I don't. Right. So I kind of step away from that one. It might actually be a good movie, but I'm incapable of judging it because right. I just. Yeah, I saw the official remake. I uh, saw that too. Yeah, that oh, was terrible. The Disney remake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Disney yeah. remake. Forgot there was one. Wow. But that movie but, Chaos, they four-walled a theater here in uh, Chicago, and it played there a number of weeks. And um, they had Roger Ebert gave it the you know the what have we come to review, which was accurate. And they had it printed all big and had it hanging. It was a classic old-style ballyhoo. And I went to see it on a Saturday afternoon. It was just me and my friend and a couple of old fellas in suits. They were like old men in suits watching the movie. <laughs> ah, those right. are the days. We're far yeah. afield here. But no, but so, but what, what, what was the inspiration for the title Shattered Dead? How did you come up with Shattered Dead? Oh, um, 
Wow, you're really, I mean, this is back in 92 yeah. or something. Yeah, so I'm demanding I, yeah. an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had an answer for you. Yeah, I'm usually really good with answering questions like that, but I, I don't really remember. I never had another title for it. You know, sometimes you have a title. For, I remember I wanted to call it Dead People, but the title had already been technically taken by Messiah of Evil, which is a film that I love, and yeah. one of its retitlings was Dead People. And when I found that out, I was like, shit, I got to come up with something else. So there might actually have been in 92 a point where I remember the name, uh, the title Shattered Day, and just said, fuck it, I love Harlan Ellison. I might have just done that, bifurcated it, and said, that's close enough, no one will ever come after me. So I'm going to go with that for the answer for now, even though I'm not 100% sure, because I'll print the legend. That sounds good. So we should say Scooter McRae is a uh, filmmaker. His movies include Shattered Dead, 16 Tons, St. Frankenstein. I'm going uh, to correct you, pardon me, I'm just saying movie maker, because I shoot, technically I shoot on video, okay. not okay. film. I accept so this. I, I, like yeah. to, I like to, I, I know it sounds anal, but I do not like Not at all, no, I appreciate that. Much as I appreciate anal, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, Scooter, I, I mean, I've been a fan of yours forever. I had no idea we had uh, these kind of personal connections. And uh, we'll, we'll go into that more tonight. So, please. Well, uh, yeah. Well, well, all three of us were at SUNY Purchase at the same time. I, I didn't know. Did you? I didn't know you at all. I was there. I was only there two years. I was there uh, 86 to 89. So it was two two years. Oh wow! What were you studying? Eighty six to eighty nine, and you add that up to be two years. Well, it was four <laughs> yeah. semesters, is what I'm saying. Oh, oh no! It was wait, no, no, it was eighty eight. I'm sorry, it was yeah, eighty eight. Yeah, I got the boot. Okay, yeah, good. I got that the boot in eighty nine. Right. So, um, yeah. Why? Sorry, everybody. I'm the guy not were, drinking. You were I was, already... no, no. I didn't. I didn't get into the film program. I was uh, media studies was like my half assed attempt to try to get in later, and then I never did. So. And I just yeah. stopped going to class and just quit. And then my life got interesting after that. But um, <laughs> so when were you there, Scooter? I was there uh, the exact same years that uh, Ben was there. So that would be, what, 84 to 88? Yep. Wow, Scooter we never crossed I, paths. Good times. I, I recently did a podcast for my job um, where we talked about Aaron Mavakian uh, for oh, a while. Nice. Because um, wow. uh, we were showing... Uh, uh, a, a restored version of uh, Jazz on a Summer's Day. Oh, yeah, that's coming out on uh, Blu-ray. Yeah, I keep reading about that. Very excited about that. It's yeah, wonderful we, 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 we got the scoop. We had it uh, for for viewing online uh, wow, a couple weeks ago. Choice. And I, choice. Uh, I should have reached out to you. I didn't. I saved you for Silent Running. Uh, but I did talk to Bob Goss and uh, Jeff uh, Kushner, who I called oh, wow. my classmates, but they weren't my classmates. They were older than, than us. Well, well I'm about yeah, older. They were. SUNY was interesting that way because uh, keep in mind that, as you probably remember, you know, when you were in film school, you were generally working with other students who may be two years ahead or behind you. So they were technically your classmates, even if they weren't in the same class as you when it came to doing getting together a crew for a shoot. Yeah, I, well, that might be true, but I don't think I ever did that. <laughs> I don't think I ever asked them for anything. The one person who wasn't in our class that I think I ever got to work with us on a shoot was Ed Marriage. And that only was wow. in as much as we had him show us how to mix the best fake blood. He had a great recipe. 
and we oh, used, yes of course for we, the uh, shower yes we used it for a um, um, a, a, a thing I shot as a junior with Josh Mosby who was the subject of a fairly recent uh, crackpot cinema episode that that's Mike's other podcast that he does with his fancy Hollywood friend Aaron that's Lee. Right. <laughs> um, but that, did you know that Josh and you remember Josh right? I sure do. He's in briefly in my senior film. Yes. Oh, perfect. So, Josh in nineteen what ninety two ninety three. When was that? Uh, uh, that movie was ninety five. Ninety five. Was the shockingly late ninety five? Yeah. He did a backdraft parody with Robert Mitchum. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! With Chris Ingerson. Uh, who's it must that? have been. Back, that's called backdraft, right? Yeah. It's or called backdraft uh, two. Backfire. No. Backfire. It's a parody. Right. I, I, okay. I'm thinking of another film then. Uh, I'm sorry. With also with Mitchum that was involved a firehouse. So that's what I'm thinking of. Go ahead. Sorry. But Scooter, I'm so happy to have you here to talk about this because on that episode where we talked about Backfire, the director of Backfire is this dude, A. Dean Bell. And I know Dean Bell. Oh my God. Sex pot. Oh, I don't know anything about Sexpot. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. Go ahead. Sexpot. Well, the only thing I ever knew about Dean Bell was we had to use his crappy footage for editing class one year, remember? Yep. And that was Sexpot. That's Shot what it was, in it Ralph was, Bakshi's house, right? That I didn't know. But there was the can of soda, and people would drink the soda and eat all horny. And it was called Expo. But the joke was it was called Sexpot. And the expo was taken. You didn't believe I remember this shit from 30 fucking years ago? Because I totally didn't remember it until just now. But that was the joke in all the footage. Because, right, people remember that people drank the soda and suddenly they were humping on tables or something. I don't remember that. I remember, all I remember is like black and white footage. Uh, yep. And it was like somebody typing at a computer or something. Yep. And then there were these fancy blinds that I think were like electronic and they opened. I, I just remember thinking, ooh, Ralph Bakshi's got a cool house. Because I heard right away that this was shot <laughs> in Ralph Bakshi's house. Anyway, wow. Dean Bell and Josh ended up making this really bad parody film called Backfire. But it's fascinating to watch. But anyway. By the way, I, I, by the way, I believe that is produced by Chris Ingvertson. That's his involvement. You are, I'm you're right. Sure no, no, we, because we talked about that. Yes, yeah, you're correct. Because I know Chris because Matt Howe, also of SUNY, shot a number of films for him. And in fact, I was an actor briefly in a number of his movies, just as someone who came in did a couple of lines due to Matt. So I know them, you know, I know Chris. Matt Howe is, is, is in the crew of Backfire, too. Yeah. Is he? Okay. Know. I'm not sure if he's the cinematographer, but he's. I don't he's think on, he is on that his, one. No, I saw his name somewhere in it. Uh, how's the, how, how am I driving the show so far? <laughs> driving it right Smooth to the ground. <laughs> You're driving it like uh, the captain on uh, yeah. whatever that movie with Juggernaut. Is, I thought this was Wages of Fear for a moment, but okay, yeah. So let's take a, a stroll back to 1972 and a little number called Silent Running. I, yeah. I believe mm. that I first saw this movie in 1976 at a Star Trek convention at the New York Hilton Hotel, where Whoa. my friend Steve Ment and I went for the day and discovered early on in the day that there was this one ballroom that they had set up as a movie theater, and they were running, I have to assume, maybe 16-millimeter prints? Yeah, of, that would be 16-millimeter prints back in the day, yeah. Uh, uh, Westworld, uh, Silent Running... 
Like every great fucking That's science amazing. fiction movie of the yeah. 70s. Yeah. So we just sat our asses down on this ballroom floor and watched movies most of the day. And then, you know, then went to the sort of the floor where you bought all kinds of like eight by ten glossies of Captain Kirk and other shit. But that was the highlight was getting to see all these movies that I otherwise probably never would have seen. And then I remember seeing Silent Running many times, sort of late night TV in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah. It seemed like CBS, that was always like a movie. CBS, like, yeah, yes. like on 10.30 or 11.30 at night. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first time I saw it that way, yeah. Same here. And that was one I'd been waiting for because I'd read about it. And it was one I really wanted to see. And so I remember haunting the uh, movie listings in the TV guide back in the day and seeing that on and uh, just kind of going berserk. Like, oh, shit. I think it was even on like on a Saturday night. So I didn't have to you know, fake out my parents, pretend to go to sleep and wake up late to see it. I was actually able to like see it without. Uh, it's interesting to say that because I had the same experience. I read about it. I read that the robots, the droids were inspired by Johnny Eck from Freaks. And I probably, that, yeah. and, um, you know, I was probably in some R2-D2 context at the time. I was like, I, I got to see this movie. And, and they were, to me, like the coolest things ever. And they still are watching it again. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah. I could spend this whole show just talking about, by the way, they don't call them droids in this movie. They call them drones. Yeah. Drones. Uh, right. They're magic. And then yes. even when, even when you know how they did it, you still can't believe how they did it. And even when you know how they did it, it's even more magical. And Completely. I actually went down a rabbit hole and watched a 50 minute making of documentary, which is on yep. YouTube. And you get to meet all of the actors who played the, the drones and they're fantastic. Unbelievable. It's the greatest. And they're teenagers. I, I can't even. Yeah. Which is incredible. They're young. They're all like 17, 18, yeah. I think might be the oldest. And it's, it's crazy to think that they're that young in there. I know, and they're still they're still around. The one woman, uh, she was like seventeen. She was there was one woman. I think there were three. Oh guys yeah, that's Cheryl, them, and she's gorgeous, and yeah. uh, just pretty great. hot for half a lady. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, she's whole hot. But so this movie was directed by Douglas Trumbull, and that reminds me that another movie that was playing that day at the Star Trek convention that I saw was Andromeda Strain, which he did uh. the he made his. He made his mark by doing the effects for 2001 and then also for Andromeda Strain. For which he undercharged grossly. Uh, sure, it's interesting yeah. on the audio commentary for Silent Running that I was listening to the other day. He talks about how Silent uh, Andromeda Strain nearly bankrupted him because he had completely underbid on the effects. And it's uh, one of the reasons that led to him going to Silent Running was uh, needing to have some work. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun watching him on the set of Silent Running in this behind-the-scenes thing, and he's like sort of like, uh, you know, directing Bruce Dern, which I feel is, has always been probably an impossible task, uh, but he's trying. Uh, but it's funny, because you can tell it's he's a first-time director, and he, you know, he doesn't really know what he's doing when he's talking to actors, but it's, you know, he got a good performance out of Dern, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and he, saw, he also looks like the kind of guy that you and I would have beaten up in high school. <laughs> yes, if the, if there was like, ever such a thing that you and I could pick on someone in high school, he'd be the guy. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's just dive right in, shall yeah. we? Please. So it opens with this, I, I guess it's called macro photography, and the first thing we see as a viewer are these snails that I guess are part of one of these biodome um, but um, I was instantly watching it again uh, today was put into the mindset of 
these other micro photography films that came out in the 70s and in fact came out uh, one of them the one that i first thought of came out also in 72 the hellstrom chronicles do you guys remember yeah, this movie i love that movie yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's funny i thought similarly it's like that phase four also phase four. Yeah, yeah what what's interesting is that i was watching the credits and i expected that i think it was ken middleton who mm-hmm. is famous for doing a lot of that macro photography but there's no credit for macro photography in in the in the film yeah and i was listening to the audio commentary on that and basically that was that's doug trouble operating a camera with a super wide angle lens on it moving through at one point there's a a little uh what do you call the uh uh thing on its back its home is on its back why well, can't i remember the name of this creature um well not a snail it, thank you. It's a snail. Oh. Uh, there was a snail. <laughs> it's it's sometimes the simplest word eludes. Some strong but, water you got there. Yeah. Oh man, it's good. But the snail is going along, and, and Trumbull's like, "Yeah, I, I brought that from home that morning and put it on the uh, little bit of set they had." And uh, so that's how dedicated Douglas was. Uh, the cinematographer is this guy Charles F. Wheeler, and I almost right. stopped my research before because he didn't. In, in in the in the Wikipedia entry, they have his name, but it's not a link. And I thought, oh, there's no Wikipedia on this guy. But then I went and searched for him separately, and uh, I did find a bunch of information. I'm glad I did because this guy shot so many fun movies that are right up our alley, Mike. This guy shot. I know me. CC and Company in 1970. You ever see that Scooter? No, I haven't. Joe Namath, Ann Margaret biker movie comedy. Action comedy, great. Sounds perfect. Tora, 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 for which he was nominated for an Academy Award in 1970. I prefer Wara, Wara, Wara from SCTV. <laughs> yeah. Um, the War Between Men and Women, I don't know this movie. Oh, that's a James Thurber adaptation. That's a good one. That's huh. Jack Lemmon, and I can't think of who the co-star is. There's a wild sequence where uh, James Thurber's cartoons... Kind of come to life. Oh, and, I've seen that movie. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the women attack the men, yeah. Okay, Mike, are you sitting down? I am. Because in 1974, Charles F. Wheeler was the cinematographer on a little ditty called Bad Ronald. Oh, man, Oshevitz. Wow. Damn. Now, that is something. In 1976, he directed what I consider the best of the three screen versions of this uh, novel, he directed the 1976 Jodie Foster version of Freaky Friday. Not directed. Cinematographer. Sorry. Uh, three, th- wait a second. There's three versions. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a more recent one. Uh, after oh, right. The there's Lindsay the Jamie Lohan. Lee Curtis one, too, right? Isn't well, that's, that's the Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan, Lohan one. That's the Lindsay Lohan. Okay. But right. there's one. I, it might just be a Disney Channel or Disney Probably, XD yeah. Infinity, but there is a. And I, and I we've think talked it, about being obsessed with those books as little kids, right? Freaky Friday and a Billion for Bars. Yes. Also, in 1978, he was a cinematographer for The Cat from Outer Space. A.K.A. Unidentified Flying Eye Oddball. But more importantly, in 1979, he was the cinematographer on Chomps. Which is the movie we swear we're going to do at some point. Sheesh. Also, The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. Elliot Gould Disney movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, Condor Man in 1981. Oh, it's another God. Disney movie with a British <laughs> yeah. comic. Yeah. Uh, the Pursuit of D.B. Cooper in 1981. 
Never saw it, but I know it. It's um, yeah. is that Treat Williams? Yes, Treat Williams. Yeah. yeah, early James Warner score. Yeah. yeah, and then the last credit he has is for the Best of Times, which is with Kurt Russell, I think, and Robin Williams. Oh, and God, Robin, Robin Williams, right? That yeah. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So the opening credits. Uh, we're seeing snails. We're seeing other macro photography. And I want to say the music over the opening mm. credits sets the tone as perfectly as anything I've ever heard open a movie. Like as, as great as the fanfare at the beginning of Capricorn One or let's say Star Wars. Uh, yeah. But uh, the music is by Peter Schickele. Schickele. Oh, yeah. AKA yeah, the, Petey yeah, it's Kubak. a hard E at the end. It's weird. Schickele. Schickele. Yeah. 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 Now, Petey Kubak is a phenomenon that I've never come close to understanding. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's like the musical version of Garrison Keillor, where these fuckers have yeah. like this incredibly large and dedicated <laughs> fan base, and it all seems very respectable. And like I should be getting it, but I I'm clueless. I have no idea what the joke is, or where I'm supposed to laugh, or what it's all about. Either of wow. you guys? That was so perfectly worded. I yeah, you got have it. Nothing no, to you add. You it. just you fucking nailed that. Um, yeah. I, my uncle Phil wow. is always a huge PD. PDQ Bach fan, but he's like a hardcore classical music fanatic. So I think it's just like, you know, it's some deep shit, like SCTV style stuff for that world. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. utterly baffling. Yeah. I've actually heard a few pieces uh, performed uh, with him doing that that were funny, but I, uh, because I got the joke, but I could also see that if you, if I'd listened to it long enough, it would, I would reach a point where I wasn't going to get the joke anymore and <laughs> yeah, right. just feel like an idiot so i was glad i only heard selected bits for that and you know it's, it's interesting because i'm going to go off on a tangent for a moment that's yeah. completely related to what you just said but i know we're just starting off on silent running but one of the things that fascinates me about the movie is i feel like uh some of it is douglas trumbull's reaction to having worked with kubrick on 2001 a space odyssey and i felt like getting uh, Shickley to do the music was somehow a response to Kubrick using classical music cues throughout 2001. I think so that's he got a the guy who observation. Did, I think he got the guy who did the parody of, that's what he's famous yeah. for, of classical music to come in and do a score. And everything that I've seen interview-wise with Trumbull says he didn't know that Shickley was doing the PDQ back shtick but got him because of the Joan Baez uh, albums he was listening to. And um, I don't believe that at all, actually. I, I think Trumbull may just be lying at this point because there's numerous points in Silent Running where he's, he's I, I don't want to say it's, it's a crude way of saying it, where he's kind of kicking Kubrick in the balls here and there. Uh, the fact that they go to Saturn is definitely mm -hmm. a callback to 2001 because in 2001 they were supposed to go to Saturn and and Kubrick's like, no, we can't shoot this in a realistic way. And Trumbull's like, oh, uh, I'll take care of that later on my movie. And that's what he does here. Um, he also, the, uh, the fact that the inside of the ships and the astronauts are such complete, like these are the, the astronauts on board the ship in Silent Running are the absolute precursors to the astronauts in Alien, where they're all oh. just dock workers basically yeah, yeah. in space. And I feel like this is also a response to 2001 A Space Odyssey, where they're just like, they're 
you know, they're homegrown, corn-fed NASA boys from the Midwest. And this is, again, Trumbull taking a big dump on that and going, no, they're, they're going to be like these kind of guys going out there doing this kind of thing. I, we could talk about it more as we go along. So I'm just kind of doing a big data dump here up front. No, that's but great. I, no, could, I, but I want to start with the shikali because yeah. that's always been striking to me about the movie. I love that. That's great. So, absolutely perfect, fantastic, Scooter. You already earned your your guest status on the show. Um, <laughs> oh, so, the movie was written by Michael Cimino, oh. Mike Cimino, Mike Cimino, yeah, who also co-wrote Magnum Force before he kicked off his directorial career with um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. I think was his first yeah. movie. Yeah, Lightfoot. Yeah. And then he, it's if I if I understand how to read screenwriting credits, and I'm not sure that I do. I believe when there's an ampersand between two names, that means that these two guys worked on the script together. And then if there's the word "and," then that means. And then there was another draft by this other guy. So my impression is that Chimino and his partner Derek Washburn, who ended up co-writing Deer Hunter with him, um, and also had some credits on that Jack Nicholson movie, The Border. And that Nick Nolte movie, Extreme Prejudice. Oh, seen that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is such a blast. Wow. I think they wrote a draft. And then I think Stephen Bochco, who was, I think, working for Universal at the time, got brought in to right. sort of uh, revise and, and punch it up. I think that I think that's what it means when I when I look at that thing. But um so anyway, they're in the credits, and that's interesting that those are the people who wrote this movie. I mean, I, this movie doesn't really strike me as um, having that much in common with any of Chimino's other stuff and not really with any of Stephen Bochco's other stuff. No, but, I agree. It's hard to really put a DNA on this one in terms yeah. of figuring out like how it relates to the work. I was, I was equally baffled, and especially if you hear Trumbull talk about his initial idea for the story— uh, didn't even involve uh, uh, shipping the forest off into space. He had a guy out there with the drones and have an alien encounter uh, oh. at some point. And uh, that was really like all he had. It's not much. And again, feels like a throwback to 2001, putting the aliens in at the end and then whatever was going to happen. And so it sounds like they, these three writers really did shape and come up with a lot of the uh, stuff in there. So I don't know if any of those writers particularly had an ecological bent to the work that I'm not familiar with or I'm missing somehow because I, I didn't find anything. But it sounds like that wasn't even part of the initial idea that Trumbull had so much. Yeah. I mean, I guess Heaven's Gate, uh, maybe, you know, Chimino's sort of interested in, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there, there might be some themes in Heaven's Gate that sort of touch on land use and ecology and maybe the way that, the you know, the world got ruined by technology in some way. I don't know. Yeah. For, for me, the transformation of the drones in some way is linked to the Chimino world for me, where if you look even at uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, where um, uh, Jeff Bridges has that bit where he's wearing a dress, this transformation of a man into a woman. Uh, for part of that movie. I felt like the drones being transformed from mechanical devices into personalities, strangely enough, was my Chimino link uh, to this a little bit, which, you know, whenever you're saying shit like this sounds ridiculous, but you, sometimes you grasp at these kind of straws to find some kind of uh, connective material. I like it. That's the, I mean, that's the fun of doing all this nonsense. 
Yeah. Just make it make it work. Yeah. Have an idea and yeah. make it work. Yeah. So the credits. And you've done it over and over again tonight. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> the credits end and we see our guy Bruce Dern, whose character's name is Freeman Lowell. Uh, which is a name I'm Subtle. sure we could also dissect, but who really wants to? <laughs> because for me, this is a movie where all the attempts at like overt and even covert messaging seem like thuddingly obvious yeah. and didactic. But it works like gangbusters for me anyway, and it's mostly because of the, yeah. pr- the production design, but also the tone and the overall vibe of the movie, which honestly Peter Shickley sort of gets rolling with that opening um, score and then of yeah. course the drones I mean the, the movie could just be all drones yeah. all the time and that would be great uh, but but Dern makes like a very strange I, I don't want to call him an anti-hero but I guess he kind of is in this movie uh, yeah it's, he's such a weird main character this these were like the days where you didn't have to either completely relate to him uh, the main character in a movie. And you also didn't have to like totally despise them. You know, right. it, it wasn't like you were either like the talented Mr. Ripley or you were, you know, George Clooney and, in, in, uh, you know, nine out of 10 of his movies, you could have these characters that were strange and not completely likable and do shitty things, but they aren't, they really aren't the villains. They're, they're still the protagonists of the film. Um, right. Like you don't, well, m- I- movies don't get made like that anymore. Well, in this particular case, it's just like he's uh, everyone else is a bigger asshole than he is. Right. I feel like that's a lot of what the 70s uh, uh, aesthetic is about. You know, it's like he's the least of an asshole. So I guess we'll go with him. I I know those guys, the other astronauts were assholes when one of them was chewing gum on the spaceship. (laughs) Because it's like I fucking I hate adults who walk around chewing gum as it is. Yeah. But all I can think is. All I could think is that fucking gum is going to be out of his mouth and in some fucking tools or gear or something on that fucking show. Yeah. yeah. It's so, like Klingons farting in the airlock. It's just bad. <laughs> it's just very, very bad for everybody. Or he's going to spit it in the urinal, like some, like, which is always the most infuriating thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> Dip in the piss and clean my gum, whoever you are. So we see Dern and he's swimming in what looks like some kind of dingy looking water, but I guess this is our like Garden of Eden and he's kind of Adam. Yeah. Or or maybe he's just supposed to be another animal living in this forest. He kind of, you know, he always kind of looks like a bunny and there's all these bunnies and he seems to be subsisting on a diet strictly of like lettuce and carrots. Melons. And other, like, yeah. Well, Cantaloupes. he gets into the yeah. melons, yeah. Yeah. Uh, then he gets out of the water and he's doing all his gardening or botanical science or wherever it is he does. And he's got this full length hippie slash like monk's robe, <laughs> uh, which only further seems to suggest that we're in the middle of some sort of biblical allegory, maybe. maybe um, yeah. Or that maybe he's just doomed. Trumbull, Trumbull refers to him as St. Francis of Assisi. Uh-huh. That, uh huh. Specifically, yeah. you know, That's, because yeah. of the animal connection. But it's interesting because I, I had more feeling of what you were saying. I felt like he was Adam. I felt like he was a first man. Mm-hmm. As, as sort of, yeah. But it's think, interesting that in this movie, Adam decides at the end that he just has had enough. And he can't take it anymore. He he, uh, yeah. he he leaves the scene. <laughs> bad things coming. Bad yeah. things behind. Bad things ahead. I'm out. Uh, yeah. But yeah, he mostly Adam just Adam and three snakes. Yeah, he yeah. just really seems like a very tightly wound hippie most of the time. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. and then the other three quote unquote astronauts because they're really not astronauts. No, like you said, they're dock workers. Essentially, they're, they're, yeah. they're right. They're exactly yeah. 
they're exactly like the, the like Yafakoto and, and Harry Dean Stanton and Alien. It made me wonder um, first, like you know, if Ridley Scott was thinking about this movie when he made Alien at all, and it also made me wonder: have we had we ever seen these kind of characters in outer space before this movie? No, I didn't think no, so. I, 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 I was, no, it's yeah. shocking to me rewatching it and going like, "Holy shit!" I think that. The closest we've come is probably Dark Star, and Dark Star is also I think seventy three, isn't it? I'm not it's I'm not one hundred percent sure. It's either the same year or the year after. Uh, but Silent Running is definitely f- uh, first for a, a major studio release that uh, do you have because it's always astronauts or scientists, right? Like super soldiers, yeah, yeah. And, and so they come flying in on these what I'm going to call for the moment dune buggies. Right. And um, and they're immediately antagonizing him like he's like Ralph Macchio or something on the beach and Karate Kid. And they're just out to fuck with him. Um, and then he's chasing them out and he's he's got this he's chasing them away with this kind of little thing that looks like a staff, which further makes you think this guy is Moses or Gandalf or some shit. And, and, and but, but then we yeah. move to the warehouse and it's filled with all those geodesic um storage containers with that are all have this great like AMF and American Airlines product placement. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then the dune buggies, uh, turn into like bumper cars. Cause these guys are all just having fun. Like they're in an arcade, you know, doing bumper cars in, in and amongst all those, those storage crates. And then we get the first glimpse of the drones. Here, I'm going back to here's another fuck you to Kubrick. Uh, the American Airlines one was the yeah. one that was my favorite. It's also on the ship too, but uh, yeah. I, I love it. No Pan Am. No, we have American Airlines. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Take that, Stanley. Yes. But no. there's a few other interesting things there too. Uh, I forgot the uh, the ones who manufactured uh, the chem- oh, Dow Chemical. Uh, which is interesting because uh, Trumbull says they they wanted to get on board. They were happy to have their name on there because they were atoning for the uh, Vietnam chemicals that they had made and were trying to get uh, some good publicity for themselves. And they were happy to have their name on some of those crates. Some space hippie stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, here in Madison, Wisconsin, in the late 60s, there was a whole protest slash riot at this Dow chemical plant. And then somebody went ahead and blew up one of the science buildings on campus because they thought that, uh, uh, that the UW Madison was in cahoots with the U S army and was, yes, all the product placement is great. And then we get to see the drones, but what I really love, um, I love everything about the drones, but I really love that, that when we first meet them, it's very offhandedly and they really kind of stay in the background for the first at mm. least third, almost half of the movie. Like you never yeah. get a whole bunch of exposition about the drones or anything like that. They're just part of the thing. And I love that. I love movies that don't spend a lot of time like aiming you and the camera at the special effects or the cool things that they've invented you know, so that it's obvious that, that the filmmakers are proud of them. They they just sort of shuffle these drones around for a while. And you're just like, wait, you're like, show me some more drones. Well, we should describe <laughs> yeah. what they look like and how they move. And- yeah, go for it. Well, they're, they're <laughs> boxes that have feet and they yeah. kind of waddle around. One of them looks kind of like a lunchbox, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. those old yeah. plastic lunchboxes. Yeah. yeah. And they and they grow to have distinct personalities. And emotions, and you become really attached to them by the end of the movie. And um, they're played by amputees, which right, I only bilateral, just recently bilateral found out. amputees, right? 
who are walking on their hands. So that's why they have that particular gait, which, as you said, is magical and not something that has ever been equated anywhere before or since. It's a yeah. really hell- well, heavy, It's really special, effect. I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah. you got to think that that's what George Lucas had on his mind when he was doing Star Wars and creating R2-D2. And I know yes. that he asked Doug Trumbull to do the special effects for Star Wars, and right. Trumbull yeah. turned him down. And, you know, but for my money, any one of these three who en- end up being called Huey, Dewey, and Louie halfway through the film uh, are, are better, cooler characters than R2-D2, if you ask me. Yeah, well, and it, I mean, it did occur to me as they were walking around, I was like, well, if you were going to have these things, they'd have wheels so they could just, you know, speed around and stuff. So, again, you know, Star Wars simplifying and dumbing everything down. Let's put wheels on the uh, silent running drones. Yeah. And uh, also the, their, their silence is also something. Yeah. You know, it's not like R2-D2 where they're, they're given some they, – they, they, they have these little panels on them that open and close. They have a little squeaking sound. But that's the extent of what we get out of them for sound. So there's the kind of mysteriousness about them that's that's in, oh, it's always intriguing. Yeah, and it actually it allows the two of them to communicate silently with each other and sort of um, team up against Bruce Dern in a, in a poker game later on. <laughs> like yeah. he 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 is regularly beating the pants off of them, but he sort of takes his eyes off of them for a minute, and we get to see that they're communicating right, with their little great. flashing lights. Yeah. Do you know what you know? It's fascinating about that moment. I'm sorry, we're jumping ahead again here. If that was going to be a plot point, but um, again, listening to the commentary and Trumbull talking about it, there's a, the moment where the two uh, drones are there, and one turns its cards slightly so that the other drone can see the cards. And um, during that famous scene, that wasn't scripted. What had happened was they'd shot the scene, and the editor had extra footage of the hand just turning the cards one way so that that particular moment which is i think one of the best moments in that wonderful scene was built in the editing room by a obviously a very good editor who knew what they had when they saw the material because it was interesting for trumbull himself to to kind of all these years later on the commentary track 30 years later uh, because the track was done in 2005 where he was like ah you know i i can't take credit for that that was that was uh construction um, so the name of this vessel is the Valley Forge, and um, the uh, the film itself was apparently shot on an aircraft carrier of the same name. Uh, and and watching this making of, it, it certainly seems like that was the case. But it kind of amazes me at how much space there is on one of those things because this doesn't yeah. feel like a sort of the claustrophobic sort of submarine. Or, you know, other kind of naval ship that, that you normally think of. Like, uh, there's uh, all of these rooms seem to have a lot of headroom and a lot. Yeah. Of, I, I mean, obviously, some of it wasn't shot on on that carrier. Like, I don't I'm, I'm assuming that the actual biodome sets are not on the carrier or if they're on the carrier, they were sort of built on the no. carrier, but they're not. Inside no, the, 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 the biodome. Yeah, those those were separate, very tiny uh, sets uh, that they built. They had no money on this thing. the the time, The final budget was one point three million on this. Wow! Yeah, it was amazing. actually it was part of a it was part of a five picture arrangement. I don't know if you were going to go into that at some yeah, point. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't. Um, go ahead. Oh no! It's at the time because of Easy Rider, uh, studios were like, you know, holy shit, this thing made a lot of money. So they're like, we're going to put together five million, five 
$1 million movies uh, and just give the directors complete creative control in the hopes that they come up with the next counterculture movement movie that's going to, you know, sweep into theaters and make us a shit ton of money, of which Silent Running was one of the beneficiaries. And if I was really good at this kind of thing, I'd name the other four movies for you. I'm well, sorry, I don't remember what they are, but we'll this find is this that is out. We'll yeah, that's, that, that's, that's great. what the internet that's a great is for. Bit of but uh, yeah, but th- th- it's interesting because that's the movie is what it is because he's a first-time director. Uh, there was no one from the studio on set bothering him. They really did leave him alone, as they did with the other four movies. Well, as we learned on a previous podcast, Paramount did that again in the late 70s, maybe 78. Into the early 80s. Into the early 80s. And as a result, we got movies like Dom DeLuise's directorial debut, uh, Hot Stuff. (laughs) And partners with uh, Ryan O'Neill and John Hurt. But they did did get an Uh, officer and a gentleman. It was the Paramount 7. And, wow. and, and one of them never came uh, out. The the movie uh, Young Lust, which is the great lost film that I couldn't find for Teen Movie Hell, huh. but uh, but they did get our office and the gentleman out of that. So okay, they made a little money on that one, I guess. So speaking yeah. of poker games, we uh, we're at the part of the film where they have the first poker game, which is Bruce turn up against the three bro jock uh, pals that he has on the ship. Um, and it's, if, I find it funny that for this sort of vegan hippie bioethicist, um, he's also something of a card shark or card sharp. I couldn't figure, I couldn't remember if it's shark or sharp and I looked it up and it it's turns both. out it's both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do think it's very funny that, that Bruce Dern, every time he plays cards, wears a visor, which I, uh, <laughs> I never understood. What is the, is there a practical purpose to wearing a visor while you're playing cards? I guess if you bring your head down, the visor is senseless if you keep your head up. But if you look down at your cards and you got it, hides your eyes to the other players. Ah, right. Ben, I had the same right. question, and Scooter, you just answered it. This has really <laughs> oh, been okay. a gold mine. That's got to be what it is. <laughs> yeah, sounds yeah, like I, it's not the light. No, it's it's like a, you know, remember the Unabomber, the famous right. uh, poker player. He'd have the hoodie and the shades. Yeah, there's all kinds of poker players who now wear shades all the time and all kinds of like outfits. But yeah, that must be it. It's like the original way to hide your eyes so people don't know what you're what you're thinking. Uh, Hide your tell, as they say. Yeah, Um, it's kind of like a gambling yarmulke. So let's talk. (laughs) Let's talk about the three guys who don't make it that far into this movie. But first of all, there's. Ron Rifkin, who I know of as Arvin Sloan from Alias, of which I watched every single episode. So, um, and I didn't even recognize him the first couple times that I saw this movie post Alias. Um, uh, he looks a little bit like Pete. What's that guy who ran for president? Pete Buttigieg from the Buttigieg. side. Oh, he looks like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're Governor right, Pete. Yeah, he <laughs> sure does. Yeah. Wow. Oh, God, um, that's funny. And yeah. and Dern has this great line in that poker game where they're busting his balls and he's, I don't know what they say, but he says, I'll let that uh, witticism slide by. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, so Dern is absolutely our protagonist, but it's hard to ignore all like his hubris, his sort of delusions of grandeur and, and uh, just kind of like a basic creepiness. I mean, those guys are assholes, but it doesn't make Bruce Dern any creep, any less creepy uh, right. Yeah, he, uh, but he's totally alone and unwilling to like even meet the guys a little bit in terms of let's have a good time. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but it becomes obvious that that Dern is the only one who cares or believes in this mission at all. Like they're totally 
again. It, it, in fact, if anything, one of the one of the assholes is more sympathy at this point, just as he's trying to draw Dern in a little bit. Right, right, I mean, right. This, totally, does, yeah. this doesn't last very long, mind you, but right. it's interesting that at that point, you're almost like, you almost feel like he could become a protagonist at this point, yeah. because he seems to be the one who can be with these guys and also be with Dern. But, as I say, not for long. Right. And so, um, uh, one of the guys says, and you know, there's 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 a lot of this movie that seems like weird and timely to me now. It's it's kind of sad how, how how so many of the plot points and the lines in this movie feel completely relevant to today. And there's one there's one guy who says to Lowell uh, talking about the flagging interest in their project. He says it's been too long. People got other things to do now. It's like so right. they they made this attempt to sort of rescue the earth from itself and but people have moved on and they've just said ah fuck it we don't need any we don't need any wildlife and we don't need any flora or fauna um but so then they get the uh the transmission that they've been waiting for and and dern thinks that he's going to hear that he's been made what king of all forestry back on earth or something (laughs) and they're like rolling their eyes and they think they're going to be called back and sure enough they are being called back but not only that they're being told to blow up destroy all of these uh outer space forests with uh nuclear bombs yeah. and by and the, the by the uncredited voice of joseph campanella too ah, which is weird Ah, yeah okay like, you hear that voice and you're like i've heard this voice yes. a thousand times before sure. who is that but he's not i don't know why he's not credited i don't know if it's some union thing hmm. since this is such a low budget movie but uh it's yeah. odd that he's not so, but even he says, uh, there's no explanation as to why we're doing this. And there never is an explanation. Did, does Trumbull in the commentary talk at all about what the sort of larger plot is, why it is they've suddenly decided to blow up all of these fucking things that they've been working on? I don't know. Maybe, maybe now is a good time to address the elephant in the room with this movie, which I love this film. It's great. But let's take a moment to talk about the science of this film, <laughs> okay. which is... So fucking boneheaded, stupid, wrong, idiot. It's astounding. When I was 12 years old and I saw this for the first time, I'm just going to let it go. It's fine. Even then, I was kind of like, does that really work? But at the at the delicate, no bullshit age of 54, I need to come out and say that this is the stupidest fucking premise in the history of cinema since the moon got the moon got blown out of orbit in space 1999. <laughs> Which, by the I, way, I, also seems like it steals from this as far as spaceship design, right? The, 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 yeah, yeah, the, to some extent, yes. Yeah. The eagles look a lot like they could be working um, on the uh, Berkshire or the uh, the Valley Forge. Yeah. But you you can't deforest the Earth. There's no way to deforest the earth. No one would survive. It. It's just, there's no, well, what if this or what if that? The answer, no, no. Well, what if, no. It just goes on and on. So the basic premise is, uh, I, you're asking a question. You're, you're, you're trying to analyze science that is no science. Uh, so, but it's an interesting question. Well, I mean, you know, there's always this sort of like generic, like, well, the world's gone mad. And, you know, people are just insane there. I mean, you know, again, today's situation and the sort of reaction to this pandemic and this virus and the, you know, the amount of people denying the fact that there is even such a thing or that it's a danger to anyone is also, you know, like, how is this possible? But I, I will say in, in terms of dumb plot points in this movie, 
the one that struck me this time is like, wait a minute, what the fuck is that Bruce Dern, whose whole fucking existence is all about growing these plants <laughs> and taking care of these animals, oh, being a botanist, yeah. spends the whole second half of this movie not understanding why everything is dying. And then yeah. has some dope like say to him, well, the, the, the light and all of a sudden he's like, oh, yeah, there's no sun. Like, see, that's what that struck possible? me. Yeah, I was going to get to that next, okay. actually, yeah. because. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very valid question. And there's there's two things here. The first of which is like, well, if you wanted light from the sun in the first place, you probably shouldn't have shipped these fucking things out to Saturn. <laughs> because the amount of sunlight they'd be receiving from us at that point is so negligible, if even. Yeah. It would it would be a star. It would be like us seeing a star in the night sky. It's asinine. Plus, we didn't even take into account how many years it would take to schlep these fucking ships with forests out to Saturn. These things should have been in orbit between the Earth and the Moon, or something like that. Just, just the only reason that we don't have that is, I think, because Trumbull was like, "Fuck! I did 2001. I saw enough of the Earth, and I saw the Moon. Let's go to Saturn. Let's just get it out there." That's even uh, a problem I, in 2001 as to how they got near uh, uh, Uranus. Oh, listen to me, Uranus, uh, Jupiter, <laughs> Jupiter instead. But I, I guess I didn't. But they understand were going beyond they, the infinite. Yeah, and I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah. me, I, I, I didn't even understand that they were deliberately. Any of them were headed towards Saturn. I thought he decided to go to Saturn to escape. Uh, once he kills everybody and is like, I got to get the fuck out of here and, and well, save I my that one too, last He goes through the rings. He goes through the rings yes, in order does. to make it look yes, like yeah. the ship is blown up or, right. and they'll stop following him. But as right. to what they're doing out by Saturn with all the stuff in the first place. But And, and back to your right. point, though, is like, right. of course, you know, there's. I was watching it uh, the other day for this and I was thinking all they needed was one line. All they needed to do, because he's talking to himself, is, holy shit, I'm a botanist. I must be going out of my mind. How could I have not realized <laughs> right. that it needed sunlight? By the way, it would still make no sense in that there's still not enough sunlight that they would make, but at least right. it would have made sense for him to yes. have realized I've really gone bug fuck crazy here. And it well, would have been a minor thing, no, but they don't you're... have that. So uh, now I... it just seems like an idiot. Yes, Mike? <laughs> I was going to say, I could accept the deforestation of the earth because I was thinking, you know, maybe they have some, there's some little forests and they've, they figured out a way to like electrically just hyper uh, pump oxygen and everything that we get from the forest. But <laughs> it was that goddamn sunlight shit it made me crazy. And what it made me think of a movie that nobody should have to think of is the M. Night Shyamalan movie Signs. Where they realize, so these aliens come to Earth, they're terrorizing Earth. If you throw water on them, they die. It's like, why did they come to a planet that's two-thirds water? Just water. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> the botanist should know the plants need sunlight. I hate that you wow. brought up M. Night Shyamalan. But, um... uh, but I had to because that's all I thought. Of. And back to the deforestation, again, I thought it was it was the world had gone mad kind of thing. And I thought of the forest fires in California and the right. climate mm -hmm. change deniers. And the, I, the world's insane. But I will say before this, this, little piece before of this podcast, I actually went online and I was like, let me look the science up. Maybe I've been wrong all these years. Let me just double check the science. And all I got was just what repeatedly fisted in the face. Boom, boom, boom. No, 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 no. There's no yeah. way to do it. There's absolutely no technology right. we right. can have that replaces trees because I'm on your side on this one. I want to believe. Yeah. I, and I love the movie so much. But, right. but now here's yeah. the thing about the sunlight. Now, if they had made it more of a plot point as part of his, he's clearly supposedly 
basically having this descent into madness, right? He's haunted by these deaths. Mm-hmm. He keeps flashing Which was back very to that. effective. Right. The yeah. hauntings was very effective. So if they had yeah. just made yeah. it a little more of a point that, like, he's, like, losing it in all ways, but he doesn't He doesn't really seem to be losing. Maybe it's one of these Jack Nicholson in The Shining things where he's so creepy from the get-go that you don't really register uh-huh. the different degrees of his madness. That's a perfect point. That's a perfect analogy. He comes on crazy and... Is yeah. he crazy at the end? Or, you know, I don't know that he's changed. Right. I think it gets a little gentler as things go along. But uh, to to your point, it's maybe also because he doesn't have abusive and abrasive people to right. uh, work off of. To uh, he's got to his act buddies. Off of. The, the so yeah, so gross. that might be part of it. So is he? He might still just be as crazy, but just not as demonstrative about it. But he does seem a little quieter as things go on. All right. So getting back to our bros. We have this guy, Cliff Potts, the actor. He's the guy, he's the first to die. And he's the guy who has a bit of, at certain angles, he's got a bit of the Gary Busey to him. Um, and sure. yeah. he, um, apparently he uh, starred as a rapist in the Emmy-nominated TV film, A Case of Rape. Um, there you go. That's an art, an artistic and subtle title. <laughs> I wonder what that's about. Right. I, I, yeah. Well, it's about. A, I, I read what it's about, and I think that he he rapes Elizabeth Montgomery twice. Sheesh! Twice. What the? Fuck? And yet, then get some lawyer to convince a jury that he's not guilty. And then, I, then I don't know bewitched. what happens. But, twice. Right, yeah. Yeah. But he's uh, so they they get the news about. Um, Getting shipped back home, they gotta blow things up, and he says at his most sort of tender, he puts he puts his arm on Bruce Dern. And he says, "Hey, Lowell, I'm sorry. You know, it makes sense, you know." And Lowell says, "It's insane," which is <laughs> another great yeah. turn. <laughs> the third brostronaut is played by this guy Jesse Vint, and out of the three brostronauts, he's got the longest yeah. list of credits. Um, yeah. A ton, a ton of TV work, uh, but he was oh, yeah. also in Earthquake, Forbidden World, bitches. Yeah, he was in. Bu- wow. He was in Bug. Yeah, almost started watching that list. Oh, did you? Yeah, he's also in Little Big Man. Touch oh, of class, a right there. Yeah, love that yeah. movie. He shows up in odd places. Yeah, I'm trying to find the last movie he was in that I've ever even heard of. He, he guest starred on the A-Team in 86. Uh, so anyway, then that then the first of the two Joan Baez songs kicks in, and we're in full-on 72 hippie folk music mode. Now, I, yeah. I will say that I think that the opening titles music is the same as that first Joan, and I think it's the better of the two Joan yes. Baez songs. One of them is, oh, actually, very much. One of them yeah. is actually called Silent Running. And then the, I don't know what the name of the other one is, but I think that's the one that she's. I think it's called Rejoice in the Earth or something like that. I have the soundtrack CD somewhere. But, uh, I, uh, didn't, I didn't pull it down. Yeah, I, I admitted to it. Sorry. No, that's okay. I have I have the lyrics <laughs> sure. to that other one, which I thought were mind-blowing. Oh, man. Uh, she goes, Earth between my toes and a flower in my hair. That's what I was wearing <laughs> when we lay among the ferns. Earth between my toes and a flower I will wear when he returns. Turns and this goes yeah, on and on. Beautiful. Oh, that's the that's the silent running song, because then that the chorus is uh, tears of sorrow running deep, running silent in my sleep, running silent in my sleep. 
Boy, when she and Peter Shickley got together, man, there was no stopping them. Magic. Vibrato on her voice. <laughs> that that shatters Peter the Kubak that shatters the yeah. glass that's covering the biodome. And and, and you know, it, it, we're joking about the music, and you're saying how much uh, you love the opening score. It's still interesting that at this point, this, this was not as common for a science fiction film to have an orchestral score hmm. because a lot of science fiction films either didn't have a budget allocated to have an orchestra, hmm. and this is actually a small orchestra for this one wow. but you know you used you think of electronic music right. sometimes yeah. and other stuff theremin theremin yeah, yeah. or you know zith- or, zith- or, or even something like i'm sorry to bring up a movie i know you don't particularly like but that i love which is barbarella uh which has that great kind of rockish score i, to I do love i love that music i do yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. great great yeah I don't, I don't have the barbarella thing that ben does i think it's cute i like it oh i love it i love it <laughs> Even with the dialogue, I love well, it. Well, it does. It does have the David Hemmings connection. We were just, we were talking, <laughs> we were talking on another podcast a week or two ago about how it is that David Hemmings went from being the coolest fucking guy in all of London and like, swinging rock yeah, and roll dude yeah. to uh-huh. this completely drab middle-aged uh, <laughs> uh, uh, bomb diffuser in um, Jugger- Juggernaut, which is a fantastic uh, movie. Dude, that is a lot of years of good drinking. Yeah, yeah, I, excellent I, point. I, That's what I, he looks my, like. My yeah. point, I, I would say he probably has no regrets, or after a few drinks, no regrets, whatever. But uh, so life well lived. <laughs> so one of the guys complains that Lowell's cantaloupe stinks, and I kind of agree. I really hate the smell of cantaloupe. I hate cantaloupes in general, but the smell is probably yeah. the worst part. They're kind of gross. Yeah, I, I love cantaloupes, and uh, you know, I recently changed uh, the way I eat. Um, you know, doing doing work with uh, previous podcast guest Alan Broadman on the Two Minute Warning, uh, and uh, the whole thing is about eating real food. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I tell him St. Francis of, of space. Yeah, he makes quite a speech about real food. That, <laughs> yeah, that real food, and they're like, yeah. we got this fake food. It's just as good. Yeah, you know, two months ago I was right there with him, and now I'm sucking on smelly cantaloupe. And I'm, I tell you, I eat sardines every day. And my wife is not happy about the sardine smell in the house. So I really, I related to My sister Annie, once we were, uh, my whole family was was at a restaurant for some kind of, I don't know, we were all together for a weekend. Somebody was getting married or somebody was graduating something. And my sister, I think, I think it was my sister Barbara ordered sardines and Annie got up, left the table and left the restaurant. She's like, I can't. I can't be anywhere near that. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Um, but they're real food. That's nature's greatest gift, to quote Brewster. Yeah. Well, Brewster, and I love the way he end, He sort of ends that whole monologue with this line, there's no more beauty and there's no more imagination. And he gets really teary-eyed, which I think is the yeah. first of maybe three times that Dern either cries or is on the verge of tears. And I was thinking, I can't remember, are there any other movies where Bruce Dern gets emotional and teary-eyed like that maybe does he do that in coming home or is he really all pent up and coming home huh. i can't remember i don't remember yeah, time, that's a that's yeah. a good question i mean I, I have to think probably yes but i can't tell you what they are offhand it makes me want to re-examine yeah, I don't remember getting teary-eyed in Black Sunday or anything, so yeah. Well, so anyway, the guys won't listen to Lowell. They all go to blow everything up. They, they were, like, excited to start the nuclear devastation. Um, but uh, poor Ron Rifkin takes a fall in the forest. I don't know why they keep calling these things forests. They don't, they're not really forests, are they? 
I guess. Yeah, close enough. I mean, they got yeah, a river, they, you got trees, you got their environment. Like I, I love yeah. how, like, halfway through, suddenly this falcon arrives and lands on Bruce. Yeah, that was kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I thought about wouldn't the falcon be eating the rabbits, but I guess that's population control. It's the circle. Of well, life, it made so. me wonder. You know, there's a scene, and I, we're skipping ahead, and that's fine because we've been talking for about eight hours already. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but there's a there's a scene there's the scene where Bruce Stern rushes to meet up with um, Huey, who has run into some trouble in the forest, and I think it might be because a bird is attacking him or something. And he starts driving that dune buggy, buggy really fast. And in the meantime, Huey has come yeah. out of the biodome, and Brewster yeah. runs him over. And but I was wondering if Huey was running out of there because these animals or birds were attacking him, and he had to get the fuck out of there, or else uh, and wind up even worse than he did after getting hit with that. And dune I will buggy. say, a bird on a spaceship is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to clean up after that. Yeah. No. That's a good point, Ben. I got to say, I uh, uh, whether or not because I've it bothered me. I didn't know why he had come out into he. Oh my God! I just referred to the drone as a he. Well, See, so did, but that's Bruce why the movie. That's why the movie works. That's why the movie works so well. But yeah, I did. As men, he goes, this guy and this man, my man yeah. over yeah. here, and boys, come on, boys, yeah. See, in the remake, they'll feminize the robots. I think <laughs> just for, for we'll equal call time. Them they. Yeah. But yeah, in fact, I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, it was another great science fiction movie with not a single reference uh, to women on board. And there's no even the voiceover. You could have had a woman as a voiceover, but nothing. No, you know, it's. No. Uh, I feel like no. there's a, a, a. It's part of a classic genre of science fiction, like John Carpenter's The Thing, where the only woman is the voice of a computer, or Back to Dark Star, where again the voice of the computer is the only female on board. There's something about these uh, hot boxes full of men in space yeah. that uh, really lends itself well to uh, explosive personalities boiling over. So poor Ron Rifkin takes a fall in the forest. He fucks up his hand. And he needs to go to Lowell to fix it, which is weird. It's like that's how incompetent these three other guys are. They literally can't do anything. Like he can't even put some bacitracin on his own hand. Right. Um, and it, and it, and it, and it sort of starts this thing where it's like, wait, what is it that Lowell doesn't do on this ship? Like, you know, again, he's a botanist, but he also knows how to reprogram all those drones. He's in there with soldering, uh, irons and shit. And he's like, you know, like what doesn't Lowell know how to do except to remember, oh yeah, we need sunlight for the. The plants. <laughs> right. And he's the science yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah, but you know, maybe that's it. Maybe they really are just like the dock worker guys, and he is like the scientist on board. But I want to limited as he may be. I do be. want to take this opportunity while they're setting up to blow everything up to rave again about the production design and especially the props yeah. department. I could look at them working those stupid nuclear bombs all day long. That's like ASMR yeah. Yeah. for me. Like the the yeah. the, the fact that all these things were made practically and they all look like they're made out of actual metal and they all seem like they're yeah. machine parts from something else, but are totally believable as to what these, the only thing, the only prop in this whole movie that I thought, well, this is stupid is that gigantic robotic arm that is there just to take the, the pool balls and put them into that circular pool thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what do you need that whole fucking thing for? Can't you just grab your own goddamn pool balls and drop them back in the thing? Yeah. That's, and the funny thing is, that is, uh, to your point, that is a real machine. I, I, I remember reading years ago, that was something, I think, from a, uh, a car manufacturing plant mm-hmm. or something that they repurposed. Oh, that like, sense, yeah. it could have It could have killed somebody. Like, it was a real, you know, strong and dangerous machine they were uh, repurposed. But if I, could, if I could have one 
actual prop from any movie, I think it would be, I would love to have one of those blue nuclear devices that they're constantly like turning those keys in and putting down. And it actually, now that I think of it, reminds me very much of some similar things that are in Andromeda strain, which are probably also a Douglas Trumbull thing, right? Because there's all that key turning and lowering and raising. And of course they totally steal that in alien too, right? Um, uh, Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Steals that whole thing. They've got the end and they've got the, yeah, the the explosive device on the ship and all those little things coming up and out. Yeah. I think that was part of it, it's certainly it's, it's part of an era of uh, finding verisimilitude in a for an audience, which uh, is, is now lost. Yeah. You know, we don't need to do that anymore. People just watch a Star Wars film or something and everything's just taken for granted right, at this point. Right. But I think for that for that era, especially you needed to show that something was solid. Things fit together. It made the audience go like, oh, wow, ooh, gee, you know, that looks like it really works. But something. I think that if you try to figure out why movies suck these days, that's a primary reason because nothing is real yeah. and yeah. It, nothing feels real. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't get the sense that anybody's actually interacting with anything else on screen. There's no physical weight. There's no presence. There's no shadows. Yeah, Yeah, that's perfect. Weight, especially. You feel the weight of those devices in their hand. You see them move. You can see the the way the the wrist drops when they're picking it up. And speaking of weight, there is one seriously fat squirrel in that forest, man. Every time they catch Oh, my God. Yes. He was the best. sure is. That thing was wild. That little guy's my hero. The Falcon was waiting for him, man. Yeah. So all sorts, Falcon couldn't lift yeah, that. all sorts of explosions start happening, and I'm honestly not sure who's blowing up what. I guess it's these other freighters that are, you know, have totally other crews, and everyone's blowing up their shit. Um, uh, and and Lowell is getting triggered by every one of these explosions, and then Cliff Potts arrives at the biodome where Lowell's working. And he's there to plant his bomb, but Lowell's not having it. They have a scuffle. Cliff Potts shoves Lowell. They start wrestling. Cliff gets a good whack at uh, Lowell's leg, which turns into trouble for the next half hour of the movie. But then mm-hmm. um, uh, Lowell gets him, crushes his windpipe, I would say, with that handle of the shovel. Right. Yeah. During all this too, there's a, a, a the, the, no music, which is interesting. Yeah. Like it sells itself on just sound effects and visuals for quite a long period uh, during most of this. I think after the initial uh, music of the first explosions, it goes quiet for a while. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's very uh, it's very confident. Yeah. Uh, the film in being able to sell what it's doing without needing to underline it. Like and that. I found that a very credible fight between the two of them. And I was thinking much how yeah. the 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 ships themselves are so physically believable. That was a very physical, believable fight. It's spazzy. It's not beautifully orchestrated. It's two guys just trying to thrash each other. Right. Yeah, totally. And, and so then Lowell has to run and limp along in order to uh, seal off the other two guys in the biodome that they've just rigged to blow. And so he traps them in there, sends the thing packing. It blows up with them in it. And uh, he's gotten rid of all his... Uh, 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 frenemies on the uh, on the freighter um uh but he uh lowell then um uh what, what happens then oh he so he decides he needs to fake an explosion so that everyone thinks that uh, the valley forge has been knocked off its orbit and is headed towards a in a collision course with saturn maybe i don't know what he tells 
uh, uh, what's his name? Camp uh, Joe Campanella, but Campanella. Yeah, I mean, I, I the impression. I mean, it's, and the way they shoot it is that he's he's trying to go through the rings and get right. the ship lost or beaten that way. But what is he? You know, the dust kind of in the but what does he say to Campanella? Has has happened that, that there's been this other explosion and it's and it's caused the sh- it's caused the 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 ship to go off of its course, right? And that's why he's Something losing like that, contact yeah. with them. Yeah. yeah, I was a little confused, but I think that's that's basically what I took away from. And it. There, and a lot of this yeah. now, a lot of uh, Dern's machinations are all in his head, and we spend a lot of time just sort of watching him. He it becomes like this one man in a room drama for about five minutes, uh, and he's on yeah. uh, you know talking to Campanella, but it's all about watching Bruce Dern's face, and he's so ridiculously watchable. You can read so many thoughts and emotions on his face. Uh, you know he's 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 one of the greats, Bruce Turn. I have to I have to say. Oh, I love him. I love absolutely. Him so much. Yeah. So I was thinking, like, I may not love any actor more than him. Wow. I probably love other actors as much as him, <laughs> but he's right at the top. Just looking at him in this, I had that realization. So yeah. so his leg isn't getting any better. So he enlists the help of what's still at this point called Drone Number One, and all the drone reprogramming stuff is very goofy and funny in hindsight. Uh, not only how does you know how does he know how to do any of this stuff, uh, um, but it's but like we were saying, it's so tactile that it remains like a pure pleasure to watch him like look in that sort of microscope and he's working and stuff. It's just it's just super fun. It's such a fun section of the movie just to watch him go about all that business. I think absolutely, and it's also funny to actually see an attempt at science in a film in which science has been so completely flushed down the <laughs> toilet for. Uh, Ninety percent of yeah, it. Yeah, and then there's some really interesting editing in that surgery montage. It's like very like yeah. like weird arrhythmic cuts, and it made me think. I wonder if it was a little bit more graphic, and then they wound up quick cutting some stuff out to keep their G rating. Because I'm assuming this was well, rated for, G. It, it was, was rated G. When yeah. I watched it the, the last week, I was like, it, the movie ended and a G card came up, and I was like, what? He kills these guys. He blows them up. He says crap at one point. I think there might have been some other, mm-hmm. uh, one or two other obscenities. And I thought, jeez, Well, man. you, you know, know, that was back in the day, man. The, the Andromeda strain was rated G. And the first 20 yeah. minutes oh, yeah, of the Andromeda right, strain should be a hard yes. R bordering on X, <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that film. And you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's got, it's brutal. Uh, I wrote down this note. Bruce Dern is a hairy guy. His arms and legs are seriously hairy. He's got some serious arm and leg hair. <laughs> he's not Robin Williams, Harry, but he's Harry. Right. Yeah. So then um, uh, he tries to get the drones back inside for this uh, evasive maneuver. And um, one of them gets stuck outside. His little, his little leg gets stuck and torn off. And he goes flying off into space. And I thought, man, for a movie that's like um, cast with all these double amputees, I'm not sure if it was a tribute to them that one of these drones gets his <laughs> leg torn off or just something that was in really bad taste or, you know, I don't know. I was just, wow. <laughs> Good call. Yeah, that's interesting. So wow. The, I want to I say this. The <laughs> Valley Forge passes through the rings of Saturn at the 48 minute mark of this movie. And when you think about how much ground this movie covers in that first 48 minutes, it's amazing. I mean, it's there's so much packed in. And but more importantly than that, 
it doesn't feel rushed and there's tons of little character moments and what it does sort of speed through are the typical like action sequences or fight scenes or all that stuff that's the stuff it's very matter of fact about and i can't tell you how much lighter and zippier that makes the movie feel and why every stupid action superhero movie now is at least three hours long because it's nothing but these dragged on bullshit fucking fight scenes and this one is just like boop 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 in 48 minutes you've killed off three people you've sent yourself hurling into uh, orbit outside of saturn (laughs) you've you've reprogrammed drones you've had your leg fixed this whole fucking thing and it and it all feels like proceeding at a fairly leisurely pace yeah yeah that's a great point yeah I love the drone dragging uh, Gary Busey Jr.'s body into the grave. It was, that was great. It feels it feels very blood simple, and you kept expecting him to sort of yeah. raise his hand like Dan Hedaya <laughs> at the grave. Um, so it's at this point that Lowell names the drones. Drone number two is Huey. Drone number one is Dewey, and Dern says, "Little Louie, God bless him. He's not with us anymore." <laughs> this is another great line. I don't know why he named yeah. them out of order. That was yeah. Awesome. And <laughs> then so then we find Lowell back in the biodome with his hippie monk's robe, and he's teaching the drones how to plant trees. And he calls their first effort pitiful because uh, yeah, a little come out, <laughs> comedic relief there after yeah. uh, killing everyone yeah. and blowing shit up. Yeah, and that's when Joan launches into that second song, the the silent running song. Um, cue montage. Yeah. Then they find little Louie's leg and Lowell takes the opportunity to lecture them about carelessness. It yells at him. Come on, man. It's so sad. The leg got caught there. It wasn't like the robot did anything wrong. I mean, uh, that's yeah. And 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 his two pals were so clearly sad. The two little drones. Yeah. And he's yelling out about being curious. Right. And then he, that immediately cuts to him driving that dune buggy around like a maniac. Yeah, like a fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which you which at first I'm like, talk about careless, and then you realize no, he's yeah. having a breakdown. He's having all these flashbacks right. and blah blah blah. But it's uh Right, he's thinking about the guys he yeah. killed and And then we get sort of a montage, which is like the many moods of Lowell. He's driving recklessly, he's yeah. eating an apple, he's pressing buttons all over the place. Um <laughs> That's a beautiful montage. <laughs> and it is. Yes, and then it the is. Falcon uh, comes in and lands on Dernsey's hand. And Dernsey, or the Dernsey says something about uh, that the Falcon bit his hand and don't do that again. I was kind of thinking maybe that was act- maybe that actually happened. Maybe the Falcon actually yeah. bit Bruce Dern, and that's uh, yeah. He was he was frightened of the bird. Yeah. I, I saw in an interview with him. He was uh, so that I don't know if that actually was real or not, but it felt real. So. Another another win for him as an actor. So yeah. this circular pool table that I was talking about before, is that an actual game that anyone knows of? Or is that one of these, like, in the future, we're going to play pool in a circle? What's interesting about that pool table, the reason it is what it is, uh, is that the uh, card game was added because initially they were going to play pool and the drones were going to walk around the edge of the pool table. That's why it's got that very wide border, 
and why oh. they show it off a little bit. But the it was a thirty, I think a thirty-two day shoot, wow. and they reach a certain point where they're like, we we just do not have enough time to film this. We'll do the poker game instead. And I think the film benefits from it. The, the, Very much. Well, that's the scene everyone remembers, right? Is the uh, the, the the poker game. Um, but yeah, so that's why it was designed with another purpose in mind, that pool table. So you know that thing, Scooter? Maybe you don't. Um, uh, we, uh, Bruce Stern was on, um, was it, the, it was on the Gilbert podcast a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. And he talks yes, to, when Hateful Eight came right, out. Right, and he, he yeah. talks about this thing um, that he does, he tries to do on every movie where he comes up with what he calls a Dernsey. Which is some like some like <laughs> some bit of improv that he springs on the director at the last minute, and they always love it. And they're like, "Oh, you saved the movie with that Dernsey." Um, so I, I think I want to. I want. I'm going to take a guess. If it wasn't that Falcon thing, the Dernsey is when he's playing poker with the drones, and he says, "We're not playing for three and one oil here. We're playing for money." I feel like that's that was his that was his improv line this movie. I tell you, I do not know, but I have to agree with you. It's a great line, and it—I'm it, uh, not putting down the script here, but it's—it's it's kind of above everything else that comes before or after it. As yeah, it uh, flies being out a, of yeah, yeah. It, it can only be a Dernsey. I have to agree. Yeah. Sticks out like an unsore thumb compared to the, some of the other dialogue. <laughs> like, a, like a beautiful, beautifully formed thumb that feels great. Yeah. So then he. I, I also love. Oh, yeah. Oh no! We were going to talk about the poker scene, but if not, I'll I'll wait till we get. No, there. talk about it now. That's good. No, I, I I just I just cannot believe how wonderful it is in terms of the drone personalities. Where just before he enters, as he enters the room, the one turns to the other and taps the drone yeah. to like wake him up, or you know, oh, oh you know, yeah. the, the, the the drones are just blessed with so much personality and uh the stuff that i was listening to in interviews and commentary with trumbull that really seemed to be his biggest goal was to try to imbue the drones with life and um whatever other success or failure he might have with the movie i've got to say that's a big success on his part and it's hard to think of anyone before or since even since there's been so much more done that there's things that maybe have come close, but certainly uh, before that, the closest thing might have been Robbie the Robot right. for completely different reasons. But to have achieved what he did uh, in, in just one scene like that with the robots communicating amongst themselves, working with Dern, uh, just I, I was marveling at it yet again, just thinking like, yeah, well, this is this is top-notch cinema right here. Yeah, and, and like I was saying at the beginning, it's one of these things where you're watching and you're like, how did they do this? And then you find out how they did it and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. And then it's, it's this miraculous thing where that doesn't, not only does it not ruin it, it actually sort of makes it even better. You know, you watch it again Absolutely. and you're like, oh yeah. my God, there's people in these things. and But there's still, you know, you never, not for a single second, even after knowing there's people in those robot costumes, yeah. do you think, oh, these are people in those robot costumes. You totally, right. it's their movements are just so organic and feel so right for, yeah. for those characters. It's crazy. The like all the best magic tricks, knowing how it's done does not ruin mm. the magic of the trick. Hmm. That's right. a very profound statement you just made. For Monday night, yes. <laughs> uh, so at some point, he decides to go back to the forest to get some real food because he's been lazy and eating the synthetic food. And he discovers that all the plant life in the forest is dying. 
And as we've discussed, even though he's a botanist or biologist, he can't figure out that it's lack of sunlight. But anyway, he's in quite a state. He drives his dune buggy too fast, crashes into poor Huey, fucks him up badly, and doesn't really know how to fix him. This is like, finally, Bruce Dern has reached his limit of knowledge on this uh, voyage. Like, there's, <laughs> yeah, right. there's finally something he doesn't know how to do on this ship. How long had they been on this ship? I thought they said years at the beginning, but then I was reading something that made it sound like it was just a single year. Yeah, for some reason, I don't know why, but I thought someone had said seven months, but they might have been referring to something more specific, like it was seven months since something had happened. And so I really couldn't tell. Though, if they were going out to Saturn, it would certainly be years to have traveled that far. And well, look, Again, science, like it would take years at the speed of light, you know, so, um, (laughs) which they certainly have not achieved. Here's something else that I find totally cool and realizing that it today that it doesn't really make much sense to me, didn't really, um, deter from the fact that I still think it's super cool. He's got this, I guess it's a flight suit. The thing that he wears for most of the second half of the movie, that blue, it almost looks like terry cloth. It's not terry cloth, but it's like right. this weird sort of, almost looks like a diaper. Like it's got all these like little it's yeah, a, folds in it. It's a, it's actually a, it's a, it's a modified skiing outfit. Huh? Oh. But uh, my question is, he's got all these patches on it from all these like national right. parks and stuff. Why are they on that suit? What does that represent? Or are those places that he has done work for the government? Well, it's, it's places. It's places where he's visited because that's why he waits until he, to, to sew on the Saturn one. Now I ah. guess they're at Saturn, so I, I assumed because of right. that that was like, you know, maybe that's going. Maybe that was the patch for going through the rings of Saturn. I don't know. Maybe he was being very specific. I don't know. But that's okay. why I thought that the other patches were places he'd been to. I guess to or I was hung through. up on the idea that this thing was his uniform, and that why, and that these patches must have some official, you know, work purpose. But I guess not. No, I got the yeah. I got the impression it was his collection. Yeah, I've been here. I picked them up at the gift shop and, and put them his on. And he's sewn them outfit. all on his suit, exactly. sort of in an unauthorized fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That, that's just the kind of guy he is, man. So this Anderson guy returns. Turns out they've been looking for Lowell. Um, he's also happy to provide the answer to Lowell's confusion about why everything's dying. It's the sun. And so now he's got six hours to save the forest before uh, Anderson and company are going to come rescue him, um, which he doesn't want to have happen. Uh, and then luckily for him, there are these all these geodesic containers are filled with these huge <laughs> sun lamps. I guess they're sun lamps. But they're, I'm not really convinced that they've yeah. got the proper light spectrum when he turns. You know what I mean? They didn't yeah. even look that bright. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and Ben, film school joke okay. here. Uh, did, did you notice that the stands... They had on them F and B Seco, which I, I thought was yeah. great. This is from that great era of sci-fi movie making, where it was like in Solaris at one point, uh, the, the characters carrying on a big metal suitcase, and it's like, uh, yeah, that's an Airy yeah. yeah. box, basically. And so in here, it's like, oh, it says F and B Seco on the stands. Oh, fuck it, no one's gonna know what that is. Just just put them out there. The rental company, whatever, they'll have a laugh when they yeah. see it. Listen, they made that million bucks go incredibly far i mean it's yeah it's beyond yeah, it impressive miles. how low budget this film is and how it never feels that way for a second it made it go all the way to saturn <laughs> yeah. yeah totally agree yeah. uh uh 
Lowell tells the drones to maintain the forest. He can't do it anymore. He grabs Huey, makes one last speech. He talks about being a kid, putting a note with his name and address on it. He threw it into the ocean and never knew if anyone ever found it. So I was thinking about that today. I was like, what is this story about? What does it have to do with the movie? And I guess I guess it's a metaphor for what he's just done with the last biodome. He's biodome. He sort of tossed it out into space yeah. and, and he'll, yeah, totally and he'll never know yeah. if anyone yeah. ever finds it or is it maybe it'll land. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is certainly, I, I, I'll, I'll say it. I get teary eyed at that sure. final shot every time I see it. And same thing happened watching again. It is one of the most beautifully poetic images in all of science fiction, no matter how risible the science is, no matter what good poetry transcends logic all the time. And that is the sure. winner for me is that image at the end of the lone robot in the, in that environment going out into space. It's just, I watch it. I'm like, don't, don't roll the credits. Just let the shot go <laughs> another hour. It's only a 90 minute movie, a half hour of this. I just want to see it. Keep going. Hold the credits. Fabulous. Yeah, incredible. Love moment. it. I absolutely love it. Uh, Completely on board. Yeah. So, anybody else have anything else they want to add about Silent Running as we're in hour five of this podcast? Uh, I just remembered. I, I I meant to talk about this and I forgot. Um, that the first time I actually read about this was I don't know. It was before that, but what reminded me of it was in the Golden Turkey Awards. They're talking about the Battlestar Galactica movie and that 20th Century Fox sued Universal for copyright infringement, saying this was too close to Star Wars. And Universal countered by saying, well, your robots are ripoffs of the drones from Silent Running. And I think it was just called a draw. I think they just said, all right, fuck, fuck you, fuck you. They walked away. That's wow. fantastic. Do you do you remember that in Battlestar they used stock footage from Silent Running in a couple of episodes? No, no, they, no. Yeah, that's been a long time since I've seen, I haven't watched a show since it's first on the air. But uh, it's also a Universal property, so I guess they just had that footage right. to dip into. So there's a uh, I remember there were a couple and, and Dykstra of course worked on Battlestar and Silent right. Running. So uh, there were a couple of episodes where I think they had an interior shot of the dome from the inside, and they also had a shot of the ships either in the background or going through. They were like the arbor ships or something. So they saved a little money doing it huh. that way. That's uh, great. But I remember as a kid watching it going, wow, not only does this show suck, but they're stealing footage <laughs> from that really good movie I like. I remember uh, the there was footage of Battlestar Galactic in the Tom Petty You Got Lucky video. It's like a post-apocalyptic thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, great video. Yeah, and they find like a like a like a like a storage locker or something. And yeah, they put on. They're like, "Wow, this is what happened." And it was like Battlestar Galactica was the end of the world. Oh, that's sad. If that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the, the one of the interesting things, and this is, I'm, I'm just going to talk out here. You don't have to use this, but what's fascinating watching it again is that. Um, you know, when they're in those cheap forest sets, because they are cheap and they're really small, when you see behind them the stars and the actual dome, that's all, none of that's there. That's all front projection. So they had a screen that? up. Wow. So as, as a kid, I knew that there was front projection, but I thought it was the stars that were being front projected outside 
the framework. The framework's not even there. When I was rewatching it this time, I, I noted, because, uh, and, and all the special effects, there's no, uh, like with Star Wars, there was uh, blue screen compositing of images. There's none of that in here. It's all done with front projection screens. So there's no mat lines yeah. uh, over the ships or any of that. So, uh, it was just kind of startling to see again because the effects are great. Yeah, when, when Bruce Dern is standing in the biodome and all the spaces behind him, I noticed, I was like, oh, there's no mat line. There's nothing. This is all practical or yeah. something. It's yeah. great, yeah. The, yeah. the only thing you might notice is that there are, are certain, sometimes you get a bright spot. Like when someone moves, mm-hmm. you, they almost get a halo around yeah. them a little bit. But it's subtle and it, it's only if you're looking for it that you'll notice yeah. it because it's so well done. Yeah. But those... Uh, all the environments, dirt cheap. The uh, the swimming pool that he's in was like a. The, Trumbull was explaining it's like a three hundred dollar pool from Sears wow. that they put in. They filled with water. They put the stuff around it, and Bruce Stern's in there wearing the bottom half of a diving suit because the water was so fucking cold and dirty. It looked he was, filthy. It, was, <laughs> it looked horrible. Yeah, and and filthy. Yes, <laughs> yeah. they 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 spared. Every expense, actually, yeah, uh, to uh, so, to make that happen. Uh, as far as I can tell, this movie opened in New York City on Friday, March thirty first, nineteen seventy two. Although that's not the official date that you see listed around the internet. But when I went to try to find the review in the New York Times of this film, I had a hard time. Turned out it was reviewed like on April first by Vincent Camby. That was a Saturday. And then I backtracked to the day before and it looks like this is the day it opened. And so what we usually like to do on this show is take a look at what else was playing the day that the movie we're talking about opened in New York. And so, uh, on the page, it's got the silent running ad, which silent running only took out a quarter page ad for the day it opened. So, um, but the poster, have you seen this original poster? It's very sort of Star Wars-y. It's got, like, spaceships flying all over the place. And um, the tagline is, oh, yep, that's it. There it is. That is wow. exactly it. Um, does that have the tagline, amazing companions on an incredible adventure that journeys beyond nope. ima- imagination? No. Okay. No, it does not have that, but, but it's a beautiful piece of art. Yeah. And it's so it's uh, it's a silent running starring Bruce Dern. And then it's got with Cliff Potts, Ron Rifkin, Jesse Vint and the drones. So they have they get a credit. <laughs> Good. What, what's interesting is part of uh, what Trumbull complains about in the or discusses in the commentary is that part of the idea that these were five part of a series of five one million dollar low budget movies is that it also uh went into the ad campaigns oh. as well they wanted the movies to build word of mouth oh. so they did as little they wanted to do as little advertising as possible which of course in this case absolutely backfired and sank the movie unfortunately yeah oh, well so next to the ad for silent running is an article about from by mel gussow who i think was the times theater critic at the time um with the headline, Williams looking to play's opening. And it's about Tennessee Williams. And there's a picture of Tennessee Williams. Uh, and it said, the caption for the picture of Tennessee Williams is, Tennessee Williams pauses before leaving for the theater. I got to show you. I'm going to share my screen with you guys just so you can see this picture of uh, Tennessee Williams. He looks like such a such a hipster. Um, look at this guy. Holy shit. He's got a good... He looks yeah. like Leonard yeah, Cohen yeah, yeah. here looks or like something. like Dr. John. I know, right? Yeah. He's yeah. got a goatee. Yeah. He's got a whole thing in it. Yeah. He's got a... I think Joe Stockdale would be disappointed. I know, right? 
so it says Tennessee Williams' new play, Small Craft Warnings, opens Easter Sunday at the Off-Broadway Truck and Warehouse Theater. Jesus, Tennessee Williams had hit hard Wait. fucking times. Honestly, Man. I didn't I, even know he was alive in 72, but okay. Yeah, I, I didn't either. What was what was the uh, quote on top of the ad there? I saw Space Age satire. What was oh. the, uh, on the yes, final running I'll, ad? That looked like an interesting I'm quote. I'm going to read that to you in a second, but I just want to get Tennessee Williams. Sorry. No, it's good that you brought that up because I meant to. Um, he was alive, uh, Tennessee Williams, I, would, I think into the 80s because he was a Studio 54 fixture. Was he? Okay. Yeah. Huh. There's a joke to be made. So anyway, this small craft warnings, which I've never heard of, was going to open on Easter Sunday. And it says the date is an accident of scheduling. And then uh, here's the here's the Tennessee Williams quote. It's an embarrassing it's an embarrassing taste to open then uh, to attract critics to the Bowery on Easter Sunday evening. Somebody is bound to make a crack about the resurrection. They'll say the resurrection didn't come (laughs) off. He laughed heartily. So anyway, <laughs> that's nice. so the pull quote nice. uh, for um, uh, Silent Running is from Richard Schickel in Life magazine. Uh, Wait, is oh. that Schickley? Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Just, okay, sorry. Uh, Someone had yes. to. A first feature by Douglas Trumbull, who was responsible for many of the best special effects in 2001. It retains that film's awe of the beauties of space. But it goes several steps beyond in its witty satire of space age technology. Now, I don't know that I read the film that way. I don't no. feel like it's a witty satire of space age technology. No, it, no, but Dark Star is, but right. this this isn't. By the way, just to jump in, this is a very interesting. This this leads into something we discussed earlier about. Uh, whether or not silent running is in some ways a middle finger to 2001 a space odyssey but in that very quote it's responsible for the best special effects in 2001 i know that there was a rift that developed between trumbull and kubrick because kubrick uh took a single card credit on 2001 as for special effects on the movie that uh, Trumbull and some of the other technicians thought was slightly unwarranted uh, because when the Oscar came, it went to Kubrick instead of going to Trumbull and the rest of the crew uh, who pulled off many of the illusions there under the direction of Kubrick, obviously. But uh, Schickel there seems to be uh, referencing that, I think, in kind of a sly way uh, in that pull quote. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting. All right, I'm going to read some yeah. some some uh, some taglines, and you guys tell me if you know what movie they're talking about. <laughs> and good luck to you. All right. Uh, there is a law in France which makes love a crime. To die of lo- oh, I'm sorry. This one, I'm I, I'm reading you the the title of the film. It's called To Die of Love. No, no, no. Don't know. Annie Ger- Girardot in an Andre Caillé film, To Die of Love. And it says Sounds it says great. more than 11 million French filmgoers have made To Die of Love the most controversial motion picture in the history of France. Anybody want to guess what what law is being broken in To Die of Love? I don't know the answer. Um, <laughs> I'm going to guess good taste. You know, uh, the 11 million people might have been the 11 million who didn't go to see it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say <laughs> right. that they actually went right. to see it. So that that could be part of the misleading ad campaign there, just as a thought. I would just say to die of boredom. Yeah. That would be my bad review. 
<laughs> at the Fifth Avenue Cinema, which was Fifth Avenue and Twelfth Street, which I don't think I was ever around to. No, that around. was not around when we were there. There was a mm-hmm. Boonwell double feature, Diary of a Chambermaid and Tristana. I've, right. Have you seen either of those, Scooter? Nice. No. Uh, no, I've uh, seen very little Boonwell, but what I've seen, I like. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta write that wrong. You gotta get on some. You know, you're, you are correct. I, I do need to. I avoided him for a number of years because I, I didn't like what I saw of, uh, I think it was Los Olivitos, where the uh, so the blind guy gets attacked God, in the beginning of the movie. Bummer. Oh, my God. And yeah. I saw that, yeah. and I was like, I'm not seeing any Bunuel films. I was so yeah. put off by him that I was like, fuck this guy. Uh, but so slowly but surely, I'm coming around. I might even yeah. get uh, I might even get down to some point and watch, start watching Elia Kazan films, despite what a cunt he is. <laughs> yeah, okay. Good luck to that, with that. Um, yeah, I'll need it. Here's a fun article by Don Heckman. Jazz improvisation by Stevie Wonder delights the bitter end. So in 72, right. you can go to the bitter end and see Stevie Wonder. Those are the times. Wow. Um, also playing. You couldn't, you couldn't see you. Playing that day at a, at a flagship theater near you was John Wayne in The Cowboys. Oh, I love that movie. Love it. That's with him and all the kids, right? Bruce Stern. Yes. Yeah, that's Bruce Stern. Is that where John Bruce Stern shoots him? Is that right? One, right? Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Stern is, is a real scumbag in that movie. She breaks the, the, the smart kids' glasses. Yeah. yeah. Two Dern films on one weekend you could have done yeah. there. Talk about that. That would have been interesting. At the festival was a documentary, the first uncensored film from the Soviet Union. It was called simply Russia. Wow. Don't know. Oh. Um, back by popular demand, just in time for Easter matinee only matinees only the, the magical Willy Wonka. All right. Classic. Uh, now at a theater near you, Sean Connery as James Bond 007 diamonds are forever. Oh. Plus you didn't get to, you didn't just get that for your dollar or whatever it was. You also got, it was paired with. <laughs> Sidney Poitier in The Organization, which is a film I've never heard of. Wow. I, I have yeah, the soundtrack I, I, I to that. I only know it from ads. Yeah. From, yeah. like, newspaper ads, yeah. It's got a great Gil Mel score on it, and Gil Mel also scored The Andromeda Strain, which we were wow. talking about earlier. But Diamonds Are Forever could possibly be the worst fucking piece of shit Bond film ever now, in I the history of Bond. Now, I hear people say that, but as a oh. kid, that was one of the first ones I ever saw, so I loved it. Oh, just wow. what, happen, what don't, happens? Don't in that revisit one? it. Who, who's in, who's in, what's who's the villain? They're in, in Vegas. They're That's with Wynn and Kid. That's uh, what's his name? We saw a Crispin Glover's father. Bruce Glover, is in it. Bruce Glover and Bruce the, Glover. The, the two uh, weird like guys that hold hands and the Bambi and Thumper, the two yeah. girls. That beat oh, up. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean Connery does just does not want to be there. Well, it's he, an exercise he in watching an actor back. just like, what's, right. yeah. Oh, it's come awful. Back. Okay, so you know how, Mike, you know how you and I talk about movie theaters that we see in these ads we have no idea, even though they were in Brooklyn? Yeah. No clue. All yeah. right, I got one. Here's the list of theaters in Brooklyn that that double feature was playing at. All the right. Avenue U, which we know. We know that The well. Beverly, which we know. Yes. Uh, the Biltmore, which I don't know. Don't know. City Line Cinema, which I don't know. No idea. The Highway, which was that a King's Highway? Yeah, Highway was on King's Highway in West Fifth. I saw a lot of movies. Was there. that the one that turned into a porno theater? No, Avenue U was a. Oh no, I think it sometimes did show porno movies, but not always. Yeah. No, the Highway showed like horror movies and karate movies sometimes, but mostly 
I saw Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D. Okay, the Rex, <laughs> which I think I've heard of. That's the Cobble oh, Hill. Right. That became the Cobble Hill. Uh, yes. The Rugby, which I believe I've heard of. That was over in Flatbush. But yeah. now, here's a movie theater name that I have not seen come up in any of our conversations before. And it's kind of making me, like, dizzy. There was a theater in Brooklyn called The Trump. Boom! What? I don't know it. Wow. Hmm. Wow. According to this, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was like a... I bet you it was in fucking Coney Island where Trump Village is. Yeah. I bet you that's exactly where it was. At Cinema One, rated X, Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Yeah. All right. Which had a great tagline. Being the adventures of a young man whose principal interests are rape, ultraviolence, and Beethoven. It's like the right. it's like the Peter Shickley story all over again. Actually, <laughs> you've, well, so you've got like Kubrick's second sci-fi film playing at the same time as uh, Trumbull's first. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Uh, the Godfather was on its initial run, I believe. Yeah, hot, still hot. Yeah, yeah. And they had some extra late shows uh, for Easter, apparently. <laughs> uh, how, how late does it say? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's yeah, a long let, movie to be starting see, late. Let me see. That's a really good question. I'm going to guess they had an 11 p.m. Well, you're going to guess wrong, motherfucker. The Lowe's State mm-hmm. 1 had a 12 midnight. The All Lowe's right. State <laughs> 2 had a 1 a.m. That's awesome. Oh, my God. The Lowe's Cine had a 12 midnight. And the Lowe's Tower East had a 1 a.m. So you could go see The Godfather at 1 a.m. That's fucking awesome. Mm-mm-mm-mm. It was a better world back then. For sure. Uh... There was a movie called Mary Queen of Scots with Vanessa Redgrave, Glenda Jackson, sure. Patrick McGuinness. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that movie. I never watched it, but I remember. I do remember. Playing at the Ziegfeld was Cabaret. All right. God, at the Ziegfeld, that must have been incredible. Yeah. Playing at a theater that I'm not familiar with, the the DeMille at 47th Street and Seventh cool. Avenue. Wow, Times Square. And this was playing in 70 millimeter stereophonic sound in 1972. Was the concert for Bangladesh? Oh boy, Bangladesh. Maybe we should do that instead of Woodstock. <laughs> uh, MGM presents the return of entertainment. All the songs, all the dances, all the glamour. Do you know what movie they're talking about? That's entertainment. Nope. I would have thought that for sure. Right. No, yeah, no that's idea. what I would have thought, too. It's a Ken Russell joint, The Boyfriend. Oh, wow. Fuck, I, I, I love that film. I had no I idea love. that was the... Yeah. Wow. I've never seen it. I need to see that. Oh, it's fucking oh, great. Oh, yeah. You kind of need oh, to see well, it. We should do that on this show. It's great. It is yeah. Great. Okay, 1972. Walt Disney is, is, is greeting us with a happy holiday treat for all. So this is Easter coming up, right? Sure. They're yes. running Song of the South. <laughs> All right. And the tagline is, we're heading for the laughing place with, with Uncle Remus and all the critics. So are we. <laughs> and, um, but it's paired with even more Disney fun, the Million Dollar Duck. Oh, with Dean Jones. Dean Jones, Sandy Duncan, Tony Roberts. Wow, everybody came for that. <laughs> well, it is a million dollar duck after also, all. Also, what seems to be on his first run, Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry. Damn. Playing huh. in Brooklyn and a whole bunch of other theaters I've never heard of, including the Sanders, the Sutter, 
and the Carlton. No, no, no idea. Boy, Brooklyn used to have so many theaters. Really? And fancy names. Really? Uh, People were going fucking crazy for goddamn Charlie Chaplin back in 72. Yeah. Uh, Starting Sunday at the Lincoln Art was City Lights. And then we're going to hit another ad on the next page. Uh, Here's a movie playing at the Guild 50th. Oh, God, I feel like I've seen this. I feel like I somehow wound up with a VHS copy of this uh, after college, even. Uh, Peter Rabbit and Tales of Beatrix Potter performed by dancers of the Royal Ballet. Oh, God, what a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Holy fuck. Ah, we. Oh, get this. This surprises me because I thought by 72 this was making the rounds on TV every year. But Paramount Pictures is proud to announce the return of the greatest family entertainment of all time, Cecil B. DeMille's production, The Ten Commandments. Yeah, that was probably on... No, maybe not. It was probably on TV, but they would put them back. Oh, they would? Because I remember Gone with the Wind got big re-releases after it had been on TV. Okay, fair enough. And this was Easter, by the way, so... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, 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 it's not quite a tagline, but it says The Parting of the Red Sea, the single most spectacular scene ever filmed. I don't know about that. And I watch it. Every, <laughs> I watch it every Easter. Do you? They show it on Saturday on ABC. I watch the whole thing every year. To this day? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Watch it this year. Watch it again next year. Didn't, didn't know it was still on there. Wow. Yeah. Here's something. <laughs> This this ad is advertising the 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 thing about this ad is it say it says now at seventy six theaters, which just seems like a weird Damn. thing. But yeah. the movie they're advertising is the hospital, the Patty Shayevsky. That's <laughs> so weird. Holy shit, that's, that's so great. weird. I love Holy that shit. film. I, I love that movie too. And it yeah. says, "See George C. Scott in the in the performance that may win him the Academy Award for Best Actor for the second year in a row." Yeah, okay, good luck wow. with that. But <laughs> that was one that my father yelled at me to turn off. He said it's too disturbing. Um, above that at the Sutton was Slaughterhouse Five. Great movie. So yeah, sadly wonderful. that it slipped through the cracks somehow because I think it's really good. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, that's a movie I watched on TV. That was one of those movies that would play on TV, but they would say, you know, parental guidance or you know, mature right, content. Right. 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 Yeah, Channel Thirteen would show it, and they would show it yeah. uncut. That's right, where that's I saw why. It. Yeah. yeah, that's how I saw it for the first time. Also, uh, incredibly rare for that era, a science fiction film without out a single piece of technology in it. Uh, you know, talking back about silent running, about how the yeah, props yeah. have to look a certain right, way. Right. But when did we have anything else uh, like that back then where the science fiction was, uh, uh, how do we say, cerebral as opposed to right. yeah. physical? And truly, you know, a, a, a perfect film of an unfilmable novel. You read the book, it's you can't imagine it being a movie, and they, they did it. Yeah. At Radio City Music Hall, along with On the Great Stage, The Glory of Easter, is a film that Mike and I have uh, have spoken of in depth. And so I'll leave it to you, Scooter, to say how you feel about this movie. Uh, a Peter Bogdanovich production of What's Up, Doc? You know, I saw that only for the first time probably about two years ago. Barbara Streisand, Ryan O'Neill. That thing is fucking amazing. Yeah. I was... Yeah. Totally yes. blown away by it. Was yeah. not what I expected. I almost right. watched it on a dare, just like, oh, it's right. it's on TCM or something. Let me finally 
get this off the list. Yeah. And I was dying watching it. It was so fucking funny. So you yeah. you guys really yeah okay good. No, that was it. No, it's 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 an absolute masterpiece. It's one of the great great comedies. I, and it does. I just can't believe Bogdanovich did it. I, I'm not not trying to sell the guy short. He's got talent, but boy, that doesn't seem like something that would have been in his wheelhouse at all. What that well, is. Well, we were talking about like his first three or four yeah. films and how they almost seemed reactions to each other. Like, let me go as far in the other direction as I possibly can. Because this is what he mm. made right after Last Picture Show, I think, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 He did, okay, then, well, well, then he yeah. did Targets. Right. Yes. Then he did Last great. Picture Show. So think about Targets right. to Last Picture Show. And then think about Last Picture yeah. Show to What's Up Doc. It's basically Peter Bogdanovich saying, fuck everyone. I can do whatever the fuck I want. I can do anything. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, later in the career, working another way, where it was like, "This is a great movie." Now, let me make a piece yeah. of shit, and then right. I'll, you know. So, you gotta, it's, it's, it's you a pity. Can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens to the best. So here's a movie with the tagline, and it's a quote from the main character: um, "I'm for married priests, the volunteer army, and anybody or any way to bust hypocrisy." I don't know that I've ever even heard of this fucking movie. Oh, wow. Okay, okay, wild guess, and I know it's wrong. The Star-Spangled Girl with Sandy Duncan. It's not, but I'll tell you who the director okay. is because I couldn't believe when I saw right. it. The director is Blake Edwards. Oh, oh. what the hell? 72? I'll tell you the star of this movie. and uh, uh, All right. yeah. uh, James Coburn. Oh, dude, I don't know. I'm lost. It's called The Carry Treatment. I've read the title in passing, no idea what it is. Yeah, I've no heard idea. of it, but I don't know yeah. anything about he is, it. He plays a character named Peter Carey, and he's an, a medical doctor. And I don't know why he's saying what he says in that tagline. Uh, that sounds pretty goddamn It's James Coburn, <laughs> yeah. and the female lead is Jennifer O'Neill, and it looks like they're about to kiss. And, oh, well. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and then it also stars Dan O'Hurley and Pat Hengel. I would see it just for those oh, two guys. I love O'Hurley. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Pat Hengel. Good Lord. You buried the lead there. Know, that's, that's, uh, that's what we want to see. Remember, you guys yeah. remember when Jennifer O'Neill shot herself in the gut accidentally? <laughs> that was pretty funny. It happens. <laughs> did did it happens? actually provoke a response? Did it actually provoke a response from her? Because <laughs> maybe that's what it would have taken to get she a performance was, out of like her. It was like right around the time when the psychic came out. She was cleaning a gun and shot herself oh, in the stomach. Man. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, boy, we had a lot of Vittorio De Sica in 72 making the rounds. That was another 70s thing. Uh, yeah. this, Garden time. of the Finzi Cantinis was playing. Beautiful film. And also The Bicycle Thief uh, was, was also was playing at The Little Carnegie. The Little Carnegie. Which is now called Bicycle right. Thieves. And I've never had an explanation for that. Well, I think the original Italian title is plural, and then for some reason they renamed right. it, and then they've gone back and fixed it. That's what I hear. What do okay. I know? That's, that was what I would guess, but it, it just seems strange that suddenly, you know, yeah. one of the five most praised and talked about films ever. All right, here's a movie a that I've... Time. We're changing it to Stellar Wars, just to confuse <laughs> yeah. people. That's the better translation. Sorry, That's okay. Ahead. This is a movie that I never, I've never heard of. It's opening at a theater that I've never heard of. The theater is called The Victoria on Broadway and 46th Street. Okay, I think I remember that one. And the yeah. film has in its cast one of, its, one of the two names on this ad is Ringo Starr. Any idea what it is? Okay. 
Okay, it is Harry Nielsen and Ringo Starr in Son of Dracula. It is not. Okay, it is the Spaghetti Western. Blind Yes. Man. Is that what it is, Got though? It. Spaghetti Western? Yes. Ringo Starr was in Ringo Spaghetti Star. Western. It's fucking nuts. Yeah. I've been wanting to yeah. see that. Yeah, I've heard yeah, a lot of great things about well it. It's well worth finding, yeah. The tag. Who's the main star in Tony that? Anthony. <laughs> Tony right. Anthony. Tony Anthony. Yeah. Tony Tony. <laughs> exactly. Anthony. Who's in all the different? He was in yeah. Coming at You that we oh, talked wow. about. Recently. Right, right. It's, it's the same guy as Fernando Baldi directing. It, I think it has or no other credit, yeah. but it could be. I think that's what it is. Yeah. The tagline. Yeah. The tagline is "You can't hide from death when blind man says die." <laughs> Whatever that means. You're probably good translation. Blind, man. Good translation. Yeah. Pretty easy. Uh, ooh, Playboy's all-night show at the Playboy Theater. Uh, tonight, Blow Up and Zabriskie Point. Cool. I love Zabriskie Point, man. I love it. <laughs> well, that's a statement. <laughs> uh, plus, <laughs> Chapter 7 of Zorro's Black Whip. So what were they doing? Were they showing... That was campy. Oh. Yeah, they were doing a campy uh, come get stoned and watch the old Oh, it cereal. was the old cereal. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, campy. Did yeah. you ever go to the Playboy Theater? I don't even, where was the Playboy no, Theater? No, I was gone before we were seeing movies, yeah. It was just a regular movie oh. theater, yeah. Here's a movie that I've never heard of, and I know I'm saying that a lot, uh, but I'm going to read the tagline. You tell me what this is. He hit the man for $3 million right where it hurts in the diamonds. And baby, that's cold. That is a black exploitation. Yes, it film, is. And I don't know what the name of it is. It is Cool Breeze. Okay. I don't, I don't know. From, I, again, that's a good question. Uh, yeah. There's nobody whose name I even begin to recognize. Okay. But I mean, he, he, if, he, he, if it says he hit the man, it's like I Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Third big week for one of the great films of all time at the New Yorker. They were showing Tokyo Story by Ozu. Oh, huh. gorgeous. Wow, yeah. Here's a movie I haven't seen, but probably should. Albert Finney in Gumshoe. No, I don't know. Oh, you don't even know I it? I have not seen it either. No. Wait a minute. Is that Stephen, yes. is that Stephen, Stephen Frears? Frears? It's got to be one of his very first yeah. films, Wow, right? holy I think shit. It's, yeah, it, it's an early one for him, if not the first, yeah. I know it's out on Blu-ray in the UK, and I've always been curious about it, but uh, no, I have not seen it either. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, the last picture show was still in theaters, even though What's Up Doc was also in theaters. Wow. Huh. Movies stayed in theaters back then. And yeah. the, world. this is the Columbia Pictures Easter holiday <laughs> yeah. weekend, included Gumshoe and the last picture show, but also Nicholas and Alexandra. I know we talk about that almost every time right. as being there. And then the second of these Charlie Chaplin things. See Charlie at a Diamond Showcase Theater. Charlie Chaplin in Modern Times. And, like, that's it. Like, you would just go see, in 1972, just, see, see, Chow, just yeah. see Modern Times. Not even a double feature. There's yeah. nothing. It's just like, right. wow. Hmm. Wild times. And then, I mean, I feel like it was the early 70s was Charlie Chaplin, and the you know, mid-70s was the Marx Brothers. It was just, they were just everywhere. All right, that's it. I can't, I can't take anymore. There's been too much. All right, this, we're done. This episode has been overstuffed. It's amazing. It's going to be, there's enough material for, like, three episodes. Yeah, we've done it. Thank Scooter, you, come back again sometime, will you? You've, you've been a charming sure. guest. Yeah. You guys are the best. Thank you very much. I had a blast. This was this wonderful. Fun stuff. Thank Absolute you. Absolute blessing. Fields of children running wild. 
sun.